Now is the time to cross over from ashes to beauty. We have been forged in the fire of adversity. Called to return to our first love. Follow the ancient paths as we discover the hidden word of Yahuwah. This is Crossing Over. Called to return to our first love for those of you who have eyes to see and ears to hear, who have responded to the call and who desire to know the truth, who have a love for the truth. Welcome. Dr. Pigeon, we're back. It has been. Yes, we are. Can you believe it? No, I feel like I have been away for decades. It seems like it's I, I don't you know, I'm just glad to be home. I never thought I'd say that I was glad to be back in Los Angeles. But I am. I am safe and sound. And um, I'm sure you heard the report of uh, the uh, flooding in Missouri. We went out to Missouri to celebrate Passover with Parable of the Vineyard. And uh, quite a few people turned out. It was pretty awesome, to say the least. And then the day after Passover, so we had a wonderful Passover and um, we did the foot washing. We ate the lamb. It was very simple and uh, it was a very humbled event. Um, the environment, the atmosphere was just one of unity. And um, you could really feel Yah's presence there with us. Everything seemed to be ordained and orchestrated. It was just phenomenal. I was busy in the kitchen, of course, from sunup to sundown, making sure that everybody got fed. But for the night of Passover, it was really simple. We just had lamb. Um, I used the bitter herbs and I turned them into a chimichurri. <laughs> the best chimichurri I have ever had. So we had, <laughs> yeah, we had um, Josh, his wife uh, made some flatbread by hand for all of us. And so we just basically had the lamb, the flatbread, and then the uh, bitter herbs in the form of a chimichurri sauce. It was so good. Uh, then we had wine and um, we uh, hashed out the uh, memorial. And then we did a foot washing, which I thought was so extravagantly done. It was so beautiful. Um, we passed out these basins with water in them, and uh, we had uh, people, thank you, uh, Clive, she and her husband, they made soap for us. She put in a lot of time and effort to hand make soap for us. Uh, we had rose petals. We had the children passing out the rose petals. We had uh, essential oils uh, with frankincense and myrrh. And it was just a beautiful time of reflection and dedication and uh, really, you know, wiping each other's feet recognizing that the journey is long and tedious and can sometimes be overwhelming, but the joy of persevering. So that's really what the foot washing was for. It's dedication and a cleansing, if you will. Yeah. So then after, beautiful. yeah, it really was, it really was phenomenal. I wish I would have taken more pictures. I do have a few pictures I'd like to show, but uh, if I may say, then uh, we went to sleep that night and in the morning, the rain was extremely heavy. And I remember waking up concerned for the children. So there was a lot of people camping out in the tent area. And then a lot of people had uh, reserved the um, motor homes or what are they called? The RVs. Uh, and we had a cabin. So praise you. We had a cabin. And um, I remember waking up concerned that the rain was heavy. There was a, a thunderstorm, lots of lightning. And so I got up. It's about eight o'clock. Uh, in the morning and I thought, well, I got to get to the uh, pavilion. I got to start 
you know, the food that we'll make breakfast and then we'll cook for uh, the unleavened bread feast. Before I could make it out, um, somebody comes knocking on our door. It's actually Jake Grant's wife. She comes knocking on the door and she says, you guys need to pack up. We need to go. The, the campsite is flooded out. So I look outside and I think within seconds, we had just looked outside to uh, admire the rain. Within seconds, literally, Dr. Pigeon, within seconds, the whole entire camp was flooded. Now, I don't have the numbers. We do have some people in our chat. Uh, Jeremy Fox was there. Few people, Timothy was there. Um, so they know the numbers. I don't know the numbers, but I want to show you yeah, some I'm pictures. Here six inches in two hours. That's oh, absolutely it, an extraordinary amount of rain. It was quick, Dr. Pitt. Within minutes, it was flooded. And I have never seen anything like it. Earthquakes, I said, earthquakes I'm used to. Tornadoes and floods, not so much. Not so much. Uh, so it was really terrifying at first. But then, of course, the father kicked in. So here's some pictures. Here's a video I'd like to share really quick. So this is when it initially happened. Here is our cabins. So you can see this was maybe about an about about 45 minutes in. So it wasn't as extreme. But when it initially happened, it just overtook the entire campsite. People were coming out. I mean, at one at one moment, uh, Jake Grant to save his dog. His dog had gotten caught up in the flood and he was way out there and he was walking through that and he almost drowned. Jake Grant was carrying a big dog. And he was walking through the floods. Women were caught in their cars. People were caught in their cars. Um, somebody had to get ripped out of the tent. Um, it was pretty intense. And so that's where the campers were. And so you can see everything's just being washed. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty intense. Um, there's another video. This is um, a picture of uh, the event. If yeah, you that's can a see. lot more water than the last photo. Yeah, and so what you can see, though, this was everybody's stuff had just already been washed out. So it looks kind of like a menorah, huh, that tree? So you can see how, how big it is here, how high the water is or how deep. You can see the damage there, the RVs. People lost everything just so much was just flushed out and you can see the depth. And so then we have, um, let me see if we have this one here again, just showing how deep and intense it was. And then we have, I'll show you a video of the aftermath. So this is a video of the aftermath. So we came in um, a little later that afternoon we were driving through, and this is when the water had subsided, and, and this is what camp. was left. Yeah, wow. what was left wow. of it, what was left of it. Now, I praise Yah that it happened at the time that it did. If it had happened that, you know, at midnight or while everybody was sleeping, I can only imagine how devastating it would have been. Lives probably would have been lost. Uh, it would have been difficult with no light for people to get out of that situation. Because again, Dr. Pigeon, it happened so fast. I mean, it came upon us Look at that. so That's fast. That's a car right on top of another car. Dr. Pigeon, I, I was watching cars and there was nothing we could do. Oh, I'm just getting a little emotional thinking about it, but there was really nothing we could do outside of praying, of course, but people were just getting flushed out. People were in their cars and their cars were just floating through. Um, here's the aftermath. Here's another video of the aftermath. Oh, and you wow. can see they were just, just colliding. 
Oh yeah, that's horrendous. Look at that. Can you see that? Oh yeah. Look at that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Now there was no creek running through there. It just flooded right, just right down the middle of the park. There, well, there were different reports as to why this happened. We were told that this is a common thing, um, that it happens periodically. Uh, the campsite, the individuals that work there were saying that they'd never seen anything so intense. However, when we did some research, we found that, again, this has happened before with the same intensity and frequency. Uh, so I don't know what, what to believe at this point. I just know that it happened and it was something that um, is common. So uh, a lot of people were wondering, is it something we did wrong, something we did right? But I don't think that's the way the uh, works. And to be quite honest with you, every single life, not even an animal was harmed. All of our lives were preserved. I really do think it's a it was a testing. So I'll share that in just a second. But as a result, we ended up moving to higher ground. Um, we were blessed by um, a Baptist uh, facility that allowed us to uh, group together and feed our people. And then we returned back. A lot of the ca places around there opened up their facilities for us. So we did have uh, a place to, uh, to sleep for a couple of nights for free. And this was, at the end of the day, we all kind of gathered together. This was at our cabin. A lot more people came after this, but I wanna share this. I'm not sure if you can hear the sound. Let me know if you can. Can you hear the sound? No. No, okay, let me try. Oh, okay, there's somebody's playing some guitar back there. Yeah, can you hear so, it though? No. No, okay, let me... Um, let me see if I can fix that. Hang on just a second. And I think this really does speak to the, um, here we go. Oh, I don't think I'm gonna be able to. Let me see. Let's try it now. Can you hear it? No? No. No. But it sounds like the group was singing a little bit of praise. Well, yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll let me see. So anyhow, so what we ended up doing after is we got together and we worshiped. And it was a beautiful um, opportunity for us to share our faith and to be encouraged by one another. Uh, but I, I do want to just give my... Um, my opinion, if you will. Uh, I had actually become very emotional at first. I think the most uh, disturbing part was watching children scream and cry because their parents were caught in the flood and they were, it was just, that to me was probably the most moving of all things. Um, you know, having to comfort those little ones, having to comfort women who were completely terrified, who were watching their cars just float down the river. Or, or down the whatever that was. And so, but it was interesting, Dr. Pigeon, uh, there was, a. I will say this, um, again, our emotions were high. Uh, a lot of us were being moved in our flesh and then, but that subsided very quickly. Um, it seemed that the Ruach really took charge and uh, we eventually got to work and we all came together as a community. It was really a time of testing. And so a lot of questions, a lot of people were asking questions 
They wanted answers and I had to get away. So eventually I got away with Yahuwah and I asked him to speak to my heart, to reveal to me so I would find comfort. And what I got was that Yahuwah really was testing and examining the hearts of his people. Even though this was a natural occurrence, it really was an opportunity for us to reflect on whether or not we were abiding in love or fear. Now, I truly mm. believe, Dr. Pigeon, that fear is the antithesis to love. And before we can get ready, before we can uh, be ready to gather together, he wants to gather his people together. But what I found was that fear swept through. There was a natural flood and then the spiritual flood. Fear swept through that place. There were a lot of people who uh, were motivated by fear. And as a result, uh, it, chaos began to develop and, and try to overwhelm us. Again, that spiritual flood when fear comes in. And it makes a lot of sense now when I think about the masks and this whole vaccination thing and this whole COVID thing and how they perpetrated against us with fear first, right, with all those videos from China. And then now you see people who are becoming ravenous towards one another. If you're not vaccinated, if you're not wearing a mask, people are acting out of character. And again, it's because they are compelled by fear to react to you a certain way. So that I've seen a lot of that. But then I also seen on the other side of the spectrum, I also seen a lot of people who were walking fearlessly that tells me that they're, they had, they were mature in love and were able to cope with the tragedy or cope with the experience. So they were effective. They were uh, able to move swiftly. They were able to react appropriately or respond to the, the circumstances. And that to me um, stood out far more. That shined uh, far more than anybody that was motivated by fear. And again, it's just a maturity level. But what I thought about Dr. Pigeon is how fear can actually cause us to turn on one another because again, fear is going to advocate confusion and it's going to promote confusion and chaos. That's what fear does. And when you're in a state of fear, regardless of what it is that you're fearful of, people, places, or things, if, if fear has compelled you, then you can in fact lose your ability to discern and exercise wisdom. And so what I took from that was, I was truly blessed by the experience and honored that Yahuwah would consider me worthy of that kind of testing because I believe that I was able to withstand and to walk in love even though the environment became somewhat hostile. And it, eventually, it eventually subsided, the chaos subsided, but even though the environment was hostile and fueled emotionally and people were sort of, um, you know, testing each other and challenging each other, even though that was the case, I was able to walk in love. And I praise you for that. Again, it was a testing for me. I'm grateful for the opportunity to have gone through that. My daughter, she, you know, it, it showed me another thing, Dr. Pigeon. Are we really ready for war? Are we really ready for what is up ahead of us because again i found that i am way too comfortable complacency right. is complacency is probably as deadly as sin and i have found that my faith was somewhat complacent um i'm, I'm extremely comfortable here in in los angeles my daughter is extremely comfortable this really was an opportunity to wake up to he shook us up and he showed us that if we could not endure that and 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 move effectively uh, amongst each other, then are we really ready for the tribulations that are coming? The, I believe that greater things, we're gonna see worse and we're gonna see greater. 
And are we going to be able to endure if we are not maturing in love? Perfect love, mature, complete, whole love casts out fear. And this is why I think he has us in a season of isolation so that we can truly learn because the word says that Yahuwah is love. So we can truly learn to mature in love so that we are not compelled by fear to devour one another when the times get tough. Yeah. Yeah, amen. And uh, you know, I think you're really right on that, that, you know, that he was showing us, I mean, you know, it's one thing to speculate, you know, I mean, it's like, for instance, I think there's a lot of people that are looking at numbers and they say, well, gee, uh, you know, there's sure been a lot of businesses that have closed, closed down. And my heart is sure aggrieved by the number of businesses that have closed, you know, looking at the statistic. But you're not looking at the family that lost their house. You're not looking right. at the family that ran out of unemployment. You're not looking at the family that broke up because they couldn't afford to stay together anymore. You're not looking at that. You're looking at some number that says so-and-so's restaurant closed, right? Yeah. You're not looking at the house that was foreclosed. You're not looking at any of these things, right? And there are so many people right now that are just suffering egregiously. I mean, really suffering. Uh, people that have been out of work for a long time, people that are now homeless, people that are living in their van, people that are living in a shelter. I mean, I've, I've heard from all of these people recently, you know, that people who had their lives all the way, their act together, in, their lives in order, and now they aren't in order anymore. And so we can sit back and we can say, well, gee, uh, you know, uh, you should have done this, you should have done that. But the truth is, you know, the United States is coming apart at the seams, okay? And if you look around, you can you can see the boat sinking. You know, you can feel it sinking. And as it comes apart at the seams, you know, we, it, it, wouldn't it be nice if we could just say, well, everybody get on the top deck and let's all get into the rowboats. But there's not enough rowboats, right? And so here we are, and you had a firsthand experience of what does it look like? I mean, for instance, there are a lot of people who want to move to the Ozarks, and they want to go to the Ozarks and set up camp down there. Well, I mean, it's possible to do. It is. It's very possible to do. But you have to recognize that when you when you leave the comforts of home and you enter into that kind of an engagement, there's work involved. And there's not only work involved, but there is the unexpected. And the unexpected sometimes can be very deadly. You know, when we were at uh, Sukkot last year, uh, we had this, maybe it was the year before. Yeah, it was the year before. We were at Sukkot the year before. I mean, there was a thunderstorm that broke out there in Oklahoma that was ferocious. And here you had about half the camp in tents, right? And 5 o'clock, it was 85 degrees. It was nice. It was pleasant. 5.30, lightning broke out in an absolute perimeter all the way around the camp. And... As the lightning broke out, I mean, we knew that something big was coming because it was 360 degrees of heavy lightning, followed by heavy thunder, followed by uh, the rain began to pick up. And then the rain moved from a little bit of rain into heavy rain, then from heavy rain into downpour. And when it hit downpour, people started coming in. The people that were staying in tents started coming in, soaking wet. Their tents were flooded. And then, of course, when we got around 10 o'clock, the winds picked up. And then it was lightning and thunder and really heavy rain. And the tornado watches were given, not tornado warnings, but tornado watches as tornadoes were touching down on the ground, right? And so here we are in the middle of a midrash, you know, which always gives me a rash. I get a rash right in the middle of doing the midrash. <laughs> but here we are in this ridiculous midrash. And, you know, 
And, and, you know, all of a sudden I just said, Hey, look, we got to stop and pray because this thing is so bad. I don't know if a tornado is going to touch you or not. You know, now that very night, the tornadoes didn't touch down where we were, but 90 miles South, two tornadoes ripped through Dallas and ripped up neighborhoods, and tore roofs off everything else from the very same storm. Now the storm that you were in in Missouri was the storm that we were in. We were on the backside of that in uh, Texas. And of course it was ferocious down there. I mean, you know, thunder and lightning and winds, heavy rain, I mean, heavy rain. And, uh, you know, so we were at a conference, uh, a very good conference, I might add. I mean, it was just such a blessing, that conference. But uh, during that conference, you know, we were just talking. I said, you know, look, they're out here preaching drought. But the fact of the matter is, is that the when the rain started, uh, you know, the rain started and it was there to fill the aquifers in Texas. It was there to fill the reservoirs in Texas. It was there, and this is something else that you may not have considered in Missouri. There are a lot of people talking about drought, 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 and more drought. And well, obviously you got some indication that there's not gonna be a drought in that area because of Yah's blessing. So we look at that and we say, well, gee, we, we need to be afraid of the flood. The flooding happened and it moved our cars, did this. I remember once we were in Georgia with the mission team, we were in Batumi and all of a sudden it started raining and the women in the group, instead of hunkering down and, and hiding, they went outside and were standing in the, you know, the front yard of this house, jumping around, dancing and praising Yah, right? <laughs> so what are you doing out here in the rain, jumping around, dancing and praising Yah? Well, because we know this rain is a sign. It's a sign of, of, the, of the Ruach blessing us, baptizing this city and, you know, and all of these things. And, and so this is, um, you know, it depends on how you look at it, right? Depends on how you look at it. And so I think when you look at the reason why that flooding came is not because he was trying to blow out somebody's camp, but rather he was blessing that area of Missouri with fresh water because fresh sure. water is life, right? Sure. Fresh water is life. And it was the same right. thing in Texas, right? Right. And so, so like I said, Dr. Pigeon, I just wanted to comment on the event that took place there and really just give my perspective. I have had time. I got home last weekend, so I had time to reflect on everything. And I'm telling you that I am forever changed, even if just a little bit praise y'all for that, yeah, for well, that transformation. Yeah. But I am yeah. forever changed. My daughter has a spirit of humility that she didn't have before. Again, uh, living in an environment where she's comfortable. It really took us out of our comfort comfort zone, but it also showed us, Dr. Pigeon, how attached we can be to the things around us. And more importantly, on a spiritual level, it showed us all, uh, sort of like taking our temperature, it showed us all where we are in our uh, our walk and our maturity in, in regards to love, because love truly is what's going to allow us to prevail against the forces of evil in this hour, uh, because the tactics of the enemy are fear and chaos and um, confusion. So that to, to why? Because again, the enemy wants to derail us. And how so to prevent us from walking by faith? Imagine when Moshe was exiting Egypt, and he was confronted with that huge basin of water, you know, the Red Sea, and in front of him was this obstacle, but behind him was his adversary pursuing him. Can you imagine the kind of fear that may have overtaken the people had we Moses not? About that. We don't yeah. think about, we don't think about, you know, here, you're going to be rescued at the very right. last minute, right? Right. right. Very, very intense moment. Yeah, but this we is, were tests. This is we were tested. Right? Yeah, but if but if I can, Jessica, I'd like to share just for a second a little bit about the conference, because we came we came into a conference. We ran into 
uh, well, we didn't run into, there were four of us that got together and it was a real, um, you know, brain encampment, if you will. And uh, anyway, we were there with Dr. Jones and uh, he was discussing this thing called um, archaeo, archaeo, uh, archaeo astronomy. So it's a new form of science where you, where you marry archaeology with astronomy to find dating, right? To ascertain dating. Now, I'm just going to share with you just briefly, okay? Uh, because there's a lot of discussion. In fact, I got hurt. Um, I mean, not hurt. I got hit with a question earlier today. And somebody was asking me about Galatians. Galatians 1.16, right? Well, that I broke free of the Jewish religion, right? Is what it says in Galatians 1.16. Well, after spending this weekend with some real brilliant uh, apologists and, and uh, researchers, we had some very interesting things come up. For one thing that came up is we have discovered that there are actually two extant copies of the New Testament in Hebrew, complete. Complete. Now, you know what this means? This means that all the questions that we have about Paul because of the Greek distortion, a lot of these questions are going to be answered when we pull up these extant texts in yeah. Hebrew, because we're going to see something that is going to be, hmm. And all I can tell you is right now, we have like one of the discussion points we talked about during the, during this meeting is that in all of these gospels, you know how the, the gospel says in the Greek that the veil was torn in half, right? right. But uh, the gospel according to the Hebrews and these two extant texts, including in Matthew, Mark and Luke, in both cases, it doesn't say that the veil was torn in half. It says the lintel above the veil was split in half, which was a huge, gigantic stone. And in fact, the temple itself was split in half. Yes, the veil was ripped. And by the way, they, they could never put it back together. They could never fix the veil. They could never sew it back. And But but the lintel, the, the, the huge stone over the archway, completely split and not only that, but the, the but the hall for the Sanhedrin totally collapsed. I mean, they had to wow. condemn the building. It was unusable. They could never meet there again. So the Sanhedrin lost their hall. The, the very last act that the Sanhedrin did in their hall was to condemn Mashiach. That was the very last act they did. The following day, it was destroyed in an earthquake. They never met in that hall again. The temple was permanently wrecked. And it was condemned. It wasn't condemned. They went in there and tried to repair it, and they did their sacrifices and stuff. Even though the Azazel never, the 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 uh, the blood red ribbon around the Azazel neck never turned white again. They knew that when when the when the veil fell and the lintel fell, the holy of holies was exposed to anyone. And when that happened, they knew that the ruach was gone. There was no the, the presence of Yah was no longer in the building. It was done. It was finished. Over. So you had this massive testimony at the temple that Yahusha was, in fact, the Mashiach who had just died on the cross. It was huge, massive. Hallelujah. But we do know that this is that we get a little bit different recitation on just that one fact alone in these Hebrew extant texts. Now, I haven't had the chance to pour over the, the, the Paul, Pauline epistles yet, but I can tell you that one of the works, one of the works, was found in the Vatican archives, okay? They've had a Hebrew copy 
an extant text of a Hebrew copy of the book of Revelation for 1800 years in their possession. And it has never been translated. Did you know that? I did not. The book of Revelation in Hebrew. Wow. Never been translated. Give it to me. <laughs> Give and it to and me. guess what? And guess what it says? What? I am the Aleph and the Tav. Hallelujah. Not the Alpha and the Omega. It That's says right. right there in the Hebrew, I am the Aleph and the Tav. So anyway, we have a very exciting project ahead of us now. Very exciting project. Yeah. We're going to be dealing with these texts. And the point I'm making is this, is that when you look at when you look at the writings of Paul, right, we have a very difficult issue here because, number one, you had a Greek agenda in in translating. By looking at these extant texts, by realizing that, hey, we got a couple of things going, and I've, I've written on this. Number one, Paul spoke Hebrew. I'm not I'm not absolutely sure. In fact, there's nothing in the uh, in the text that indicates Paul spoke Greek. Now, of course, you know that when you go and you talk to these pastors who want to hold up the NIV or something, the equivalent, and say, this is the inerrant word of God. Why are they saying that it's the inerrant word of God? Because they don't want you thinking about the difficulties they have with their own text. Any errors that are in it, and there's a notorious error right in Matthew 1 in every English text, any errors they have in it, they want to sit there and scream at you. This is the inerrant word of God. You arguing with God? You know, then slap you alongside the face with the with the copy of the text, right? But the fact is, is that the Greeks, if you if you read the Greek, if you look at the Greek, you know, you get to the book of Hebrews, very eloquently written. But you look at the Pauline epistles, they're clunky and chunky. They, you know, bang, bang, bang. It's like somebody who speaks bad Greek putting this stuff together. Why? Because there were Greek scribes that were inscribing what Paul was telling them in Hebrew. And you and I both know, having looked at the Hebrew how deep the Hebrew can be. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and it just doesn't fit. It, you know, it's like the Greek is this way and the Hebrew is this way. It just right. doesn't fit, right? And so Paul's telling them this and then the Greeks say this and then to top it off, top it off, we've got proof of this now from this new discovery that they found in this cave in Jerusalem that they were calling a Dead Sea Scroll, which isn't. But we have proof that, that uh, the Septuagint and some of the other, uh, the Septuagint, of course, was a third century work by Origen in his text Apla. But if you look at these babies, you'll see that there was there's major discrepancies between this scroll that they found in Greek in this cave in Jerusalem, or, or in, uh, south of Jerusalem in Israel, and what you found in, in the Septuagint, particularly in the use of the word Kyrie or Kyrie. Wow, Kyrie, yeah, time, right? time, yeah. yeah. So, so these are huge things, right? So now when people want to sit here and argue about Paul, I don't think it's smart to, to argue about Paul. It's not the right thing to do until you have poured over the Greek. Very and, good. And you can look at the ambiguities of the Greek and you can see, because if you're going to argue about Paul based upon some English translation, in particular, using the translation that's based on the Westcott and Hort text, which would be the ASB, the NASB, the ESV, the NIV, those are all Westcott and Hort texts. You're using that to judge to judge Paul that's a huge mistake. And even the Stephanus Textus Receptus, which is what was is the basis for the 1560 Geneva, the 1611 KJV, the 1535 Coverdale, even that text has its issues because the Greeks wanted to assert Greek supremacy. They wanted to assert Greek primacy. Okay, they wanted to assert Greek primacy. And yeah, I think they were also trying to incorporate scripture 
into their philosophical views, into That's their science, exactly mathematics. Right. So it's scientific, metaphysical, physio physio uh, uh, philosophical. So you have all of their sciences and they were looking for a way to incorporate something that is not of man, that's not scientific to make it tangible so they can control it. So true, <laughs> so, they so can true. Control. And so yeah. as a result, you know, to try to say, to try to write off Paul and say, well, Paul stinks because my English version of the Greek uh, uh, and the way my pastor taught it, which was to teach iniquity using Paul, right? Which a lot of pastors have done. They've taught iniquity using Paul. Instead of trying to get into the, the, the greater, the deeper understanding, you know, it's like, for instance, you know, when I read that passage about the Jewish religion, right? Well, that was the Jewish religion. I think it's Galatians 1.16. When you read that passage, you have to keep in mind, Paul wrote before the second temple was destroyed, right? Because he went into the temple with Timothy when they tried to kill him. So we know that the temple was there and he wrote before the temple was destroyed. Okay, the Jewish religion wasn't formalized until after the Council of Jamnia in 110 AD. So how did you get the Jewish religion? What are you talking about? I mean, if you're talking, you know, if you're talking about the, the uh, kind of faith that surrounded the Yerushalmi Talmud, right, which I don't believe was called Judaism at that time. I don't think they cornered in and honed in on the idea of the Jewish religion, quote unquote, until the fourth century, when Constantine, you know, there, there, there came a point, you got to remember, that when Christianity first formed, right, not Christianity, but the way, the following of Mashiach, when that first formed, everybody was Jewish, right? Everybody in the book of Acts was Jewish. They were all Jewish. Well, you might have some Parthians, a couple of people here, but for the most part, the wide body were of the Jewish heritage. They were of the southern kingdom. Then it began to expand, expand to Antioch, and then it went out here, and it went there, and it went to these other places, and as it did, and then Paul began to preach to, quote-unquote, the Gentiles, which is really a non-sequitur. It's a term that doesn't exist in Scripture. He began to preach to the other nations. And as he, as he preached to those other nations, many of them came in. Well, you didn't get a majority of Greek speakers until after the second century. And by the time you get to the Council of Jamnia, when they had the Council of Jamnia, not a single Hebrew bishop of the original churches was invited to that council. Only Greek bishops were invited to that council. And it was distinctly anti-Judaizing, right? Well, the Judaism was a reactionary congregation. It was a reaction, reactionary congregant that took place after Mashiach's death. I mean, the, the writings of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yochai, you know, that were that constituted this original Talmud, those guys lived in the 100s. They lived in the 100s. Rabbi Akiva was the last uh, rabbi to work in Israel because they got expelled from Israel after that. And Yochai had to live in a cave up there at uh, Mount Hermon. So, you know, you're talking about post, Judaism was a post-Mashiach reaction to the crucifixion. So when you say the Jewish religion, how, how could Paul be reflecting on the Jewish religion when it hadn't formed for another 50 years after his death, <laughs> so right? That's a good point. So somebody, somebody had a, got a little loose pen, a little loose pen with the interpretation in the Greek. And so we're going to sit here and take a look at this and say, well, the Greeks said, well, you know, Paul, according to the Greeks, Paul, according to the Greeks, blah, 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 blah. Well, maybe you need to take a look at the Hebrew text. Maybe it's better to think, and now we have proof of it. 
because there's two extant texts complete of the New Testament, one from the first century, by the way. You've got two extant texts. Well, because you have two extant texts, now we have we have some we've got two witnesses substantiating the claim at the Sefer that we took the assumption that the New Testament was breathed in Hebrew, was breathed in Hebrew. Hallelujah. It may not have been written. We didn't know whether or not it was written, but it was breathed in Hebrew. And now, guess what? Now we've got two witnesses saying, yeah, it was not only breathed in Hebrew, it was written in Hebrew. It was written initially in Hebrew. And keeping those texts alive, the people who kept those texts alive did so at the cost of their life. I can tell you that. And so when we see this, so now before you before you jump on the let's let's beat Paul up, let's get on the let's get on the kick Paul off the train gang. Make sure that you wait until you see what he had to say in Hebrew. Wow. Then we can take a look and, and compare that with the Greek spin before we get around to talking about what Westcott and Hort did with it in English. Okay. Oof. Yeah. Wow. What a way to transition. Absolutely. Something to look forward to. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense why I think uh, that you talked about Kyrios, why the time is short and why it's so important to make sure that we are not found wanting and that we are truly filling our, our lamps with oil, Dr. P, because the dark night of the soul is upon us. This is a great time of testing for all of us, even as knowledge increases. So let us also increase in love that we might be able to Amen. obtain that, hold that knowledge without being puffed up, Dr. Pigeon, that Amen. that knowledge would transform us and conform us into the image of Mashiach so that we can walk and endure even as he did the cross. So Dr. Pigeon, again, this is, I am, I came back with a renewed sense of self, a purpose, uh, more than anything, a renewed sense of purpose. And uh, I realize now that the battle is, I mean, I, I know I've overcome many things and have fought many battles, but this was on a whole nother level. This was on a level that was catastrophic. It was environmental and catastrophic and it and it, and it included, uh, you know, lots of mishpoka, people that are considered family, and some of us, you know, we were all being tested. I'm not going to say that anybody failed, but we were all kind of shown areas where, you know, there were chinks in our armor is what I kept saying, chinks in our armor, areas that we can actually look if we have a spirit of humility and recognize, okay, well, I need to uh, work on this particular area to ensure that this does not happen again. Because what we're looking forward to, Dr. Pigeon, is going to become more cumbersome. Are we able to endure that weight, the weight right. of tribulation? And right. I want to be found ready. I do not want to stand ashamed on the day of his coming. I want to be able to endure and to be effective physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually so that I can um, aid the body in time of need and not tax the body. So again, all of this is just wonderful. The fact that Yahuwah is pouring out revelation in this hour, it's kind of like the rain of revelation that is pouring out upon us uh, to nourish us and to encourage us to keep going with all of these newfound uh, scriptures and revelation. It is exciting. We are living in some pretty exciting times. And again, I count myself grateful, just honored that Yahuwah would consider me worthy for the testing, <laughs> worthy for the trial. Uh, and um, yeah, a lot of us, you know, again, being encouraged by what we went through. I saw a lot of people um, just really move effectively in the Ruach. It was really exciting to see. 
people standing in truth and and in love and caring for one another. I will say also that uh, there seems to be a lack of of understanding when it comes to spiritual warfare. I don't think that we're teaching on that enough. I don't think that people are equipped spiritually. There was a, a lack of discernment for a little while, and then it would just, uh, you know, then people's discernment got sharp, and then it would just become dull. And so, again, areas that we can refine, uh, take a look at. But spiritual warfare, I think, needs to be uh, the center of our attention, at least for now, because Dr. Pigeon, we're going to have to say to those mountains, move, right? I, I, nobody's yes, guns. Are. You couldn't yes, shoot at are. the flood. You couldn't shoot your, you couldn't take your gun out and shoot at the flood. Nobody's strong arms were able to stop the flood. So it was your nothing physical. Best, it was totally ineffective. Yeah. Right. Everything that was physical, your strength, the arm of the flesh was ineffective. It was weak to say the least. The only thing that I think allowed us to prevail was our intercession. People were getting together in groups, were interceding, were praying. Uh, we were praising in the midst of it all. We were worshiping. We were joyful. We maintained a heart of gratitude and humility. Um, nobody got puffed up. And it was just really, I think that is why we were able to continue on. And a lot of people actually stayed behind and continued to fellowship we had to come home, but we also heard, again, praise reports. Nobody physically got hurt. And let me tell you something, Dr. P. I did not lose one thing, not one thing. Initially, I thought I did. Uh, I thought I lost my little fanny pack with all my ID and um, my credit cards and everything, right. so all my stuff. Initially, I did, but everything I thought I lost was restored to me by the time I came home. Everything. I, I just found my little iPod plug that I thought I lost, but not that that matters. The point is, is that not, not one thing was lost. Everything was restored. A lot of people had their cars miraculously restored to them. One of those blue cars that you saw uh, turned over, that car was restored to one of the mothers. Um, just praise reports, just praise reports. It was just an exciting time. So, you know, a lot, a lot of people were judging uh, the experience, uh, but they were judging from afar. And again, I think that's where we lack discernment. But those of us who were in the midst of it all, uh, we we were able to see clearly that it was an opportunity uh, to be tested and for Yah to show us exactly where we are in this particular time and hour. Now, tonight right. we're going to talk about behold a red horse, rumors of war and or war and rumors of war. And I think that it fits in perfectly with what I am saying. Are we ready? If there was a, a catastrophic event that took place in, the, in our midst, if there were uh, wars or, again, rumors of war, but if there was a war, if there was some sort of event that took place, would we be ready or would fear set in and cause us to turn on each other and devour each other and to misplace our faith? That's the question I hope we answer tonight. So if you're ready... I'm ready, I'm ready and we can I'm get ready. started. Oh, really quick. So you were traveling, right? You were traveling yeah, and you were on a plane. Tell me about that experience because again, well, talk about a testing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, it was good. We had this great conference and I mean, it was a very quick turnaround for me for, you know, and I had, you know, roughly uh, about 12 hours of traveling time to travel from where I am to there and then from there back to here. And I was only down there, for, so I, you know, I left on Friday and was going to come on Monday. So I had a couple of days to do the conference and then come back. Well, Monday morning, we get on the plane, you know, and it's the usual boarding. And, hey, I got up, I got upgraded, Jessica, to first class, right? They upgraded me on their own. I'm like, hey, I'm sitting in first class. This is, I would never pay for it, but thank you, you know. 
So I get in, I take my seat in first class. It's going to be a great flight. I'm in first class. Anyway, we go through all the protocol and everything's done. You know, they give the, you know, here's the airbag, here's how you buckle and then buckle the seatbelt, that kind of thing. And we're getting ready to push back. And suddenly, no pushback. Why no pushback? Well, then the pilot comes in and he says, okay, ladies and gentlemen, there's not going to be a pushback because the guy doing the pushback, the cart operator, looked up and spotted a fuel leak. And he said, so nobody can be on the plane. Everybody has to get off the plane. Now, you can imagine when you talk about a fuel leak, you know, that's one of those things you don't detect it until your gas gauge yeah. is going down. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we were going to take you here, but now we're going to be stopping in Albuquerque for an emergency landing, right? And I hope you guys make it, right? Or worse, which is that that fuel could have leaked and, you know, caught a spark and caught fire. Right? Yeah. And who knows what could have happened? I mean, I don't know what could have happened. It could have been a total disaster. But the fact is, that guy with the cart, by the blessing of the Ruach HaKodesh, that fellow in that cart saw it. Imagine if he didn't have his contacts on. What if he wasn't wearing glasses? What if he was sleeping? What if he wasn't right. paying attention? Anything. Yeah. Anything. And he would have missed it, right? So anyway. No, and you said there were lots of children on the uh, on that flight, booked for that this flight. This was huh? an inordinate flight. Yeah, there were, there, were, there were 11 strollers in a row getting on that flight. I've never seen that before. And... Uh, you know, so I'm thinking, you know, you know, anyway, yeah. don't get me started with the, with the, with the working of the enemy. The enemy is a, an incredibly evil and vile enemy that is intent upon killing mankind. We know this, but uh, we're going to see something tonight when we get into Red Horus. We're going to see something that I've never seen before. Uh, well, actually, I had seen kind of elements of it before uh, when I talked about Moses and the, uh, and the brazen, uh, the, the brazen serpent on a pole. But we're going to see it again here tonight. We're going to see some interesting stuff. So behold a red horse, a discussion of wars and rumors of wars. Okay, so let's begin with our opening passage, uh, Jessica. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Okay, interesting. All right. Let's keep going take a look at our next passage here. Okay, now we're going to start with a little bit of background here by dealing with the red horse as discussed in the book of Zechariah, where in, in Zechariah 5, <clears throat> we have a discussion of these four sets of horses, and which are very interesting because they're the preliminary, if you will, to the four horses that are going to show up in Revelation. So here it is, Zechariah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, and I turned... And lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there came four chariots, four chariots out from behind, from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. Okay, so in our mind, we look at this, we see these two gigantic brass mountains, right? Well, we're going to take a look at that phrase. We're going to see what that means. But in the first chariot were red horses, and in the second chariot, black horses, and in the third chariot, white horses, and in the fourth chariot, spotted and bay horses. Right. Okay, let's keep going. Now, what are these mountains of brass? Okay. Now, take a look at this word here, Jessica. The word there is nekoshet. Nekoshet. Okay. Or nekoshet. Nekoshet. Okay. Now, Strong's tells us that this word nekoshet is from H5154, which is nekusha. Nekusha, right? Meaning copper, 
Hence, something made of that metal, i.e. brass. So a better word would be mountains of copper, not mountains of brass. And that's interesting. Yeah, I was thinking when I thought of that, okay, well, look, if it's Nakash, is this related to Nakash? Yes, but don't, don't get ahead of me. We're going to get okay, there. Okay. You spotted it right off the bat, right? Yeah. And of course, Nikosh. now what we have here is we have the Nikud, right? We have the vowel signs. I see it. We have the vowel signs here that are telling us, okay, well, the vowel signs are telling us, well, look, it, this is going to be Neho, Neho, Shet, right? Because these are the vowel signs that the Masoretes are going to give us. And that's going to distinguish this word from, you know, from Nekusha, Nekusha. You get a little bit of distinction there where Nekusha, kind of the feminine, if you will. But it's very clear that Nekusha is copper and even Nekoshet is copper. So we know that brass is a combination of copper and tin, as is bronze, copper and tin. Tin was found during the time of Solomon in the United Kingdom and copper was found in North America at the Great Lakes. There were over 5,000 copper mines that were being worked at the time of Solomon, bringing copper back from North America to Solomon and tin from the United Kingdom back to Solomon so that they could make the alloy of brass. And we know that brass was had actually before that because Moshe made the serpent out of brass, right? It was a brazen right. serpent, remember brass. Yeah. Okay, all right, so let's keep going. Let's take a look at the next, okay. This word nekoshet, nekoshet, looks vaguely familiar. Consider its passive participle, what is it? Nahush, nahush, wow. which is H5153. So it's bell metal or from the red color of the wow. of a serpent when hissing, right? That's cool. Oh, now, yeah. how's that for a mind boggler? Wow, right? I'm writing so it down. So, nechoshet, it comes from this nahush, nahush. And again, we have nahush is delivered to us by looking at this, uh, by looking at the nikud, the vowel sounds that are given to these words, right? And so, so we see, uh, uh, you know, we see this, uh, we see this indication that the that the um, the noon is going to be with this e, eh, and the vav is going to be u, right? And by the way, it's not ne kavash. There's no v sound in that vav because it's in the middle of the word where it appears as a vowel. And uh, so you know, so here you have this nahush, nahush, right? From the red color of the throat of a serpent when hissing, i.e., coppery wow. or hard of brass, right? So we're so we've got this these mountains then these mountains that have the color the red color of the throat of a serpent. Oh, hey, hold on, just a second. I got a moose coming across here. Yeah. yeah see, what? See, see. We got a moose out in the uh, got a moose out front. Turn your camera. Okay. Turn your camera. <laughs> so okay, hold see. on. Just, just, let me see if I can get there. Hold on just a second. Can you see the moose? Yes. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, he's just, he's just moseying through. Where am I? I got to get out of here. Anybody got me? <laughs> Talk to me. Let me see if I can get, let me see if I can get the show back up here. Where'd he go? There it is. Second. There we go. So anyway, yeah, so now the moose is gone. He's headed off. Well, there's nothing to eat here. Let's get out of here. So anyway, so when you're talking about, so this is interesting, right? That all of a sudden now we got this red horse that's coming from a couple of mountains that are the color of the throat of the serpent when hissing. Okay. 
All right, let's keep moving. We're going to see now this Nekoshet Nahush. All right, well, let's take a look at this from Second Kings. Now, this, I want to spend a little bit of time on this piece right here because this becomes very important. He, that's Yekiskayahu, Yekiskayahu, removed the high places and he broke the images and he cut down the Asherah poles. And what? He broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moshe had made. Now, that's quite an act, don't you think? Mm -hmm. Don't you think that's quite an act? Think about it. All the people who are, you know, Moshe is my is my guide. Moshe is my Adonai. Moshe is my prophet. Moshe is my rabbi. Well, and none, none of the words of Moshe are inordinate or in error because Moshe is, you know, the ultimate authority. Well, look what Yekizkayahu did. He broke his brazen serpent. Now, we know that the brazen serpent, that the serpent on the pole, is what? Asclepius? Cadesis? Right. Asclepius? Mm -hmm. Right. And it's the serpent that is now worshipped as the symbol of the medical profession, the medical profession, and which has now become nothing but sorcery and pharmacia. And here we go down. But yes, Kiskaya, who broke the brazen serpent that Moshe had made for under those days, the children of Yasharel did burn incense to it. In other words, they idolized it, and he mm -hmm. called it. What did he call the brazen serpent? Nekustan. Nekustan, yeah. And okay. let us not forget, let us not forget that this uh, Cadesis is also the reproductive or the phallic symbol for Baphomet. Again, mm -hmm. reproductive, right? The science, the sciences, or this this here, this Nehustan here is the reap. Can you see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can you see, can the, see double, the double spiraling serpent. Yeah, right there. Double spiraling serpent. Yeah, the double spiraling serpent. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. All right. And so, and this is what is being revered. This is what is revered as the symbol of what's going to save us all. Oh, yeah. oh the medical, right. medical science. Save That's us, right. right. It's going to mm -hmm. save us. Sorcery, right? Okay, and and if you think about it too, that was the event that took place was that they were supposed to look upon it and be healed. And be healed, so, right? Yeah, but they begin to idolize or worship this imagery, right? Well, idolatry, I got to tell you, I was idolatry. experiencing thinking about idolatry today, man. It is very easy to move into idolatry, very easy. And it is really kind of the the ultimate sin of scripture, right? I mean, the first thing you have is I am Yahweh, your Elohim, your Elohim. Second thing is, don't have any idols. Stop engaging in idolatry, right? The very next rule is no idolatry. No idol Now, so we think about this for a second. Because you go, from, uh, you go from the idea of a god being captured in your idol, right? Oh, let's put together a golden calf. Oh, let's put together a statue of a man with a bird's head. Let's put together a statue of a man with an ox head. Let's put together a statue of a lion with a man's head, right? We've got all kinds of things we can put together that allows us to conceptualize and see in an image, hey, we got something we can worship, right? Whether we're, whether you're worshiping a cross, whether you're worshiping a star, whether you're worshiping a sickle moon, whether you're worshiping this, that, or the other, whether you're worshiping a guy on the cross, but you want to worship, whether you're worshiping the woman holding the baby, you know, there's got to be something that is being worshiped. There has to be an image. This image is exp expressly verboten, Right. You shall not make an image of anything that's in heaven, that's on earth, that's in the seas below, nothing. No no image. Don't make any image. Don't make an image that you can pray to. Don't make it because the the, the 
the chances of it becoming idolatry are just like that. Boom. Now all of a sudden you're, you know, you put up, you say, well, I'm going to put up an icon. I'm going to put up an icon that explains, you know, the virgin birth. That's going to, you know, give us a picture of mother and child just for purposes of information to inform people who can't read. Right. Then the next thing, you know, everybody's in there kissing that icon, genuflecting to it, crossing themselves. Right. They're worshiping the image. Right. Because it's idolatry. Now, well, in this case, and we know that when Moshe built that brazen serpent on a pole, it was an act of disobedience. It wasn't the only act of disobedience he had engaged in, but that was another act of disobedience where he was told to put a seraph on a banner and he put a serpent on a pole. Right. And so it reminds me of totem, of totem poles, right? Totem meaning a, a spirit being that they believed or a sacred object in which the tribe believed uh, became was a symbol of that particular clan. So why would they incorporate these animal traits with human traits? Again, this is called uh, zoolatry, where they would worship animals and their strengths. And they would say then, you know, there were even uh, tribes, Native American tribes, where they believed that they could shape shift Dr. Pigeon, they would smoke peyote, right. or they would get high, and it would induce a state of, you know, transient or like a trance state. And in that state, they believed that they were being overtaken by a particular spirit guide or an animal guide, and that would in, uh, inhabit them. And then they would possess the strength. So if it was a bear or an eagle or whatever, again, they're looking at the strengths and attributes, which science does even today. To this day, science is trying to somehow figure out how they can spin webs or how they can uh, transform their skin, you know, into or how they uh, can marry the human genome with the, the pig genome or the a genome or the horse absolutely. genome. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Again, so there. Why would they incorporate animal features with human features? And it was because they believed that they could possess these strengths and attributes of that particular animal. So you have two different things going on. You have these totems in which they worshipped. And it became sacred to them. And then you have the worshiping of these spirit animals or these rituals in which they believed they were possessed by animal deities. Um, lots of religions have animals as a form of God uh, in their religion. Like, for example, the Hindus worship the cow. And even right, though they right. are an impoverished nation, they are impoverished but they will not touch the cow because they believe that the cow, so they can starve to death, but they will not touch the cow because they believe that the cow is a sacred God. But yeah. No, I've got to tell you, you know, you mentioned that the, the, uh, uh, the first nations there would uh, smoke peyote. Now up here in Alaska, yeah. uh, the, the tribes up here don't smoke peyote. They smoke salmon. And I'll tell you that causes a, <laughs> that causes a, a real derangement. <laughs> Just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we talk about we talk about that. You know, the tribes up here don't care how they do it outside. All right, we're going to do it a little bit different. Smoke up here. some salmon. <laughs> smoke some buffalo. <laughs> and a little moose, That's maybe. Good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but, but this um, was a, this was a real thing, huh? So this was a real thing, and it still is to this day. It's just a little more covert, right? Yeah, a little more taller. Exactly right. That's well, I mean, I think it's blatant. I mean, when you talk about when you talk about worshiping the Nakushtin, I mean, when you have the, the Queen of England come out and say, let's everybody go outside and applaud the NHS, right? The National Health Service. Oh, here's our heroes, right? 
And then let's put right. up the snake. I mean, you might as well just put the snake up there right alongside and let's put up the snake. And here's our heroes that have developed our new, uh, our new sorcery, right? You know, I, we put up a meme the other day on, on FB, you know, Elaine shared me this, shared this meme with me and we put it up and it's like, you know, three witches sitting around the cauldron. And then I'm going to add the blood of a monkey and I'll add the flesh of an aborted baby. And I'm going to add this, you know, remnant from the liver of the, you know, of the uh, zoo, zoological yeah. bat. What do I you call love, this? Yeah. What do you call this mix? Oh, vaccine. <laughs> you know, you know these people are seriously, seriously it's a real thing. People. They're warped people. Okay, so you got something with shape shifting. Here's some shape shifting. Yeah. Shape shifting, again, believing that they can shift into what's where we get that concept of werewolves, right? Mm -hmm. And that was really popular for a while. But uh, yeah, or even, you know, you've, if you think about the comics, right, you have like Mystique. Um, she is a shape shifter. So she shifts into various forms. You can see here. Uh, so they obviously have, they propose to have alien blood in which they can then adapt allows and them conform. to shape shift and mm -hmm. yeah, blah 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 yeah, yeah we shape shift up here too you know what we do is, is that we're, we're <laughs> i wish we're i could shape shift my stomach we're, we're in a frozen condition <laughs> and then when it warms up to zero we put on cutoffs and a t-shirt and shape shift into hawaiians <laughs> gosh you know i mean nothing nothing is off limits though dr pigeon nothing is off limits for uh the heart is wicked the heart truly is wicked and what they devise is again to cheat death, right? To cheat death and to live for eternity. Uh, yeah, but we'll, we'll see. We, Yahweh will have the final here, say. But we can see that when we're talking about the red horse, the red horse comes from an environment of this hissing serpent, right? Yeah. It comes from this nekoshet. It comes from this. You see, the Masoretes tell us that this word nekoshet, right? So you have nun, chet, shin, tav, right? Nun, chet, shin, tav. But remove the nikodot and let's see. Nun, chet, shin, well, nachash, the hissing serpent, right? Nachash, the hissing serpent. Now, nun, chet, shin, tav. Oh, well, that's nachashot. That's not nekosheth. That's nachashot. See, if I put if I put the e in there, okay, well, let's disguise this a little bit. Let's make it not so easy to find. Let's put e in there let's put the s sound in there instead of the ah and let's put the a at the end instead of the o wow. this way you won't see the feminine plural right nekoshet oh this is the word nekoshet which means copper but you have nakoshot in the exact same spelling sans nekudot the feminine plural i.e what hissing serpents so you come from the mountains between two mountains of hissing serpents is where the red horse comes from two mountains wow. of hissing serpents okay all right, let's keep going. In our analysis without the Nicodot, we see, and I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of hissing serpents. Wow. Boom. Now, this is a little bit different, isn't it? Wow. Wow. Okay. Then I answered and said unto the angel to talk with me, what are these, my Adonai? And the angel answered and said unto me, these are the four ruachot of the heavens. Hmm. which go forth from standing before the Adonai of all the earth. Okay, now this is an extremely important point. When we look at the four horsemen in Kizayon, these are not horses that actually ride on the earth. These are Ruachot. They're the breath of Yah. They're these four breaths of Yah that are coming out as four horses, right? A white one, a black one, a red one, and a hmm. pale green one, right? Hmm. 
I mean, for lack of a better term, you know, mucus green, right? Hmm. That's what that fourth horse is. The one that, and, and, but you have riders on the horses. Now, the riders on the horse are much more important than the horse. The horse is just giving you an indicia of its nature. But the riders on the horse are going to be something more. The riders on the horse, you know, the rider that's on the white horse comes is given a crown and goes out conquering and, and a bow and goes out conquering and to conquer, right? Mm -hmm. Very important. And there's a rider on the black horse holding scales. Hmm. Now we're going to have a rider on the red horse. Let's continue. Let's do what we got here. In the first chariot were red horses and in the second chariot, black horses. Now, I think it's worth uh, just a little quick review through the Hebrew, through the Hebrew, right? So you have here this first word, ba merkaba, merkaba. Now, merkaba, of course, is what? Hebrew for chariot, right? Ba merkaba. So ba merkaba harishon. Now, again, when we talk about when we talk about the Hebrew, you know, we want to try to rightly divide the word. Okay, we want to try to rightly divide the word. Now, here we see that they're going to take this last this word here, which is ha rishon, ha rishona. You see, we have that he at the end. Now, mm -hmm. that he may or may not actually belong to that word. It may belong to the next word. But we're going to say, but for the purposes of this discussion, yeah, that one right there. They say, well, that he belongs instead to Harishon. But Rishon, so when you say Harishon, the first on in the first chariot. In, and it's right. It, yeah, on the first you said Bamerkaba, right? In the first <laughs> chariot, right? Right. The Rishona would actually make it a feminine pronoun, right? But that ha, if that ha ends up over here, now we're talking about horses, right? Hasusim. The so horses. The, the yeah, okay. Got it. Yeah, the. Right? the horses, right? And then what do you have? Adonim. See, you see it right there? Adonim, Got it. I right? see it. I'm with you. Which, yeah. is, which actually means what? Reds, right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, Adon. Be, but, but why is, when did red become plural? Right? Mm. Adon, red. So what's reds? Why mm. Why would the, the horses are already plural? Susin, right? Because Sus is horse. So Susin, plural. Well, then why is the red plural? Mm. Adonim. And again, once again, we have this adomim with this context of, you can see it, the nikudot there, you see the vowel signs all over the word, giving us all kinds of the dagash and the mem and everything else, giving us all these signs, showing us that this is adom, right? Actually, this is showing adum, adumim, adumim. You see, you see that? I see it. Okay. So, so here we have this adumim. So we've got this plural of reds, right? And then in the next one, the, mm -hmm. the. Actually, that is that's pronounced u, right? U bermaka ba merkaba, u ba merkaba again, and in the chariot hasheni the second. But you see again, we have sheni sheni eat or sheni eat. Oh yeah, I so see. Trying to give us the plural again, right? Hasusim, susim in the horses. Shakarim, right? Black, black. Shakarim, right? And again, we have this idea of a plural, right? Okay, so here we have, and there went another horse that was red, and power was given to him to take take away the peace from the earth. Power was given to him that sat there on to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Okay, mm -hmm. so we've got two entities here, really. We have the red horse, which is a ruach. We know this. And we have he who sat there on. Ah, yes. Power, right? You see it? Okay, I do. 
So we got two. We've got the horse, and then we've got he who sat there on. And it's oh he God. who sat there on has the power to take peace from the earth. Okay. Okay. Now we're going to get into. So when it says now. when it's so when it says and that they should kill one another, are the, is mm -hmm. the horse and the rider going to kill each other, or or people? People of the I earth don't know. kill oh one another. Goodness. Oh my goodness. Okay. So two entities. Okay. All right. I'm following along. Okay. Okay. All right. Now get wow. this. There is then a singular writer who has the power to take peace from the earth, and he is marked with the horse of mankind, i.e., Jesus Adamin. <gasps> Stop. Oh my god. Oh my gosh, Dr. Pigeon. Are you kidding me right now? Now, the, the Hebrew you see below here was taken right from the passage in oh Zechariah. But there were a couple of things changed, which is I took the he off the end of Rishon, Rishonah, moved that he to Hasus, Hasus, oh right? And then we took out the vowel signs on the Dalit Oops, so sorry. that we have Adamim. See, there's no vowel sign under the Dalit. So we have uh, Jesus Adamim, the Jesus oh of mankind, gosh. clothed in red with the power to take peace from the earth. Does that give you any indication who we're talking about? Oh, my gosh, Dr. Pigeon. I don't know if they understand what you just said. <laughs> can, can they see this? Hang on. So here we have, in fact, if you go back, go back a slide. Let's go back a slide here, just one second. And we'll take a look. Go back one slide. And let's look at this passage. No, one more. Go one more. And let's look at this passage in Zechariah again. Now, why I put up the Hebrew, I don't know. I just wanted to see the Hebrew. But in looking at the Hebrew, I wanted to see what this was. And here we see, right? So you have Ha Rishon, right? The first, Ha Rishon. Rishon, ha first. Now, this is going to say Rishon, ah, Rishona, right? You see, you, I see it. You see this chametz underneath the noon there. Rishona. Okay, so Rishona is what they're trying to give us as a kind of a feminine here. And then we get the same thing with the, we get the plural of Sheni, right? So Sheni, ha Sheni, you see the he, Shen, nun, yod, right? And the nun, yod is the harik right there, ha Sheni. And then, but you have this tab at the end, which is, What's the top doing there? Well, it's giving us some kind of a possessive, some kind of a plural here at the end of Sheni. And then again, Susim. But in this first one, we have a head that precedes Susim. So Ha Susim, Ha Susim. Then at the next word is, you see, Adumim, Adumim, Adumim. You see, right there, right there, Adumim. Now, if we take out those three dots underneath the Dalit, we take out those three dots right there, then this becomes Adamim. Adam. Adamim. Yes, now, Adam, yeah. we know Adam, right? Adam. And Adam means right. man. But right. Adamim, Adamim, mankind, right? A very express statement of mankind. Hasus Adamim. Hasus Adamim. Oh, I see it. This you is the it? ha, the, sus. And then, but what about this? Well, that's the plural. That's red horses. Oh, but plural. In, in yes, yes. It's a singular horse. 
Oh, I uh, see red it here. Horse, not the plural. Plural, plural. Yudmim, Yudmim. Okay, I see it. Oh my gosh. Wow. Wow, no words. I let's look. Hasusim, Hasus Adamim, the Jesus of mankind, clothed in red with the power to take peace from the earth. He's the writer. He's the writer. Not a good writer. He has the power to take peace from the earth. Okay, let's go to the next slide and let's see how this works out. Oh so we had the little schism, okay, kara katon in the Hebrew, hmm. which is when the Bishop of England reject the rejects the supremacy of Rome circa AD 600. So you have this very interesting thing that happened in the British Isles, which is you had the death of Arthur, which was Arthur II, which was commemorated around 590 AD in Wales. And with his death in Wales, at the same time on the other side of the island at Canterbury, we had uh, Augustine enter into the United Kingdom and he brought Rome with him. And you have to remember that Augustine spent his time celebrating Rome as the eternal city. And he started lifting up Rome as the place, the eternal city. Rome was going to be the ultimate center of the universe. Rome was the center of Europe. Rome was the center of political power. Rome was the center of religious power and spiritual power. Rome, Rome, Rome. And Augustine came to the UK to exalt the Bishop of Rome, who, by the way, was appointed by Paul. The first Bishop of Rome was appointed by Paul. It was not Peter. Peter never set foot in Rome, not ever. And the first Pope was actually somebody from the British Isles, Lucius, who became Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, who was ordained by Paul to take the road of bishop, the bishop thing. Okay? Now, when you look at this idea of, of Lucas and the king, the bishop in Rome, he was a secondary bishop. The bishop in, in Britain had already been long since appointed, Aristobulus, who, who took uh, the bishop seat in 36 AD. And this guy isn't going to take it for a, a, quite a while longer. Okay, now, now you've got Augustine coming in and saying, well, you know, all the bishops are equal, which, by the way, Scripture has no role higher than bishop in the church of mankind. You know, you have bishops and you have deacons, but you have nobody above a bishop. So now we take all these bishops and we get together. You know, all bishops are equal, but one bishop is more equal than the others. And that's the bishop of Rome. Why? Because the Bishop of Rome is vicarious filio dei. He is in place of the Son of God on earth. He's in place of the Son of God, vicarious filio dei, in place of the Son of God. This is the Bishop of Rome, who is more equal than the other equal bishops. Well, in the 600s, the Bishop of London said, no, that ain't right, and we're not going to honor you because you got no more authority than we do. I'm the same bishop that you are. You're the same bishop that I am. And the Pope said, yeah, we'll see about that. Okay, so let's continue. All right, so as you're continuing, some people are asking questions. They just want a little more clarity, but I'm, I'm with you. I see it. I see. I think a lot of us do, but for those maybe who are uh, not quite synced, can you, let's, I think if we just keep going on, you want to finish well, this from this one and move forward. Well, I'm going I'm to say this here before you leave, go ahead and leave this slide up. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to say this. I'm not saying, you know, a lot of people are out there saying in the name of Jesus, Jesus is a fake God and it's only Yahusha. That's not what I'm saying here at all. But there is I'm a counterfeit. I'm talking about the Jesus of mankind. There, oof, there's a counterfeit. Adamim, right? 
Yes. He, that he's a human being yes. claiming to be Jesus, right? And, and what I'm trying to tell you is, is that Antichrist in place of vicarious, yes. right? Vicarious Christ, Antichrist. <laughs> so you're saying vicarious filio dei, vicarious filio dei in place of, in place of the son of God. And they always wear red robes. They come out of the Cardinals and the Cardinals wear yes. scarlet robes. And they're right? red shoes, Dr. P. And red shoes, right? And to you know what that words. stands for. Yeah. yeah, and I know where it comes from. I know where those yeah. shoes come from and I know, how, I know how they got red. So here you are seeing the Jesus of mankind. It's pretty clear what we're talking about. So now we're gonna, now that we've got that assumption, there it is, you see? So in the little schism, the Karakaton, the Bishop of England rejected the supremacy of Rome around 600 AD. Now the great schism, the Kara Gadol, the Eastern bishops, and I'm not sure that I have the date there, right? this might be 1096. I didn't get a chance to reflect on this date exactly. So don't hold me to it. But the great schism, the Kara Gadol, the Eastern bishops, the Greek bishops rejected the supremacy of Rome outright. It's like we're Orthodox, which means correct. And this Roman guy is claiming he's Catholic or universal, or we're, uni we're the universal church. And you guys are juniors. And the Greeks are like, well, no, uh, we're not juniors because the entirety of the New Testament was written in Greek. The, the, the capital of the Greek church was Constantinople, and Constantinople hasn't fallen like you guys did in Rome. We, we're the church. We are the ultimate church. And the church has bishops. It doesn't have archbishops. It doesn't have patriarchs. It doesn't have popes. It doesn't have guys that are more equal than the other bishops who are equal. doesn't have it, Right. But Rome most assuredly asserted it. Oh, well, our, where our bishop is more equal than you. Okay, so let's do a little history here. So the passing of the crown of the second Rome, okay, the Byzantine Empire. Okay, what if you want one too many? Go back one. I think we missed a slide. Let me see here. No, I guess not. Okay, go ahead. Pop it back up. Now, okay, now, now I'm going to explain this a little bit. So what you have is this. You have, you have, uh, first, okay, so... You have this idea that first Rome is Rome, right? That's what they called it, Rome. And it, it created an empire. And then, of course, Constantine decides he doesn't like trying to defend Rome as a city from invading armies because it was indefensible. I mean, it had an open coast. It didn't have any natural surroundings. It could be besieged. You cut off the water and you're done. So he wanted to find a place where they couldn't cut off the water, couldn't be easily besieged, and be readily defended. And he found this place. He found it at the end of the Dardanelles called Constantinople, and he formed a city there, named it after himself, Constantine, he named the city after himself, Constantinople, and he then called this the capital of the Roman Empire. Well, Rome over there on the other side was like, hey, you can't steal our capital from us. You know, we're still the capital. But Constantine didn't abide that at all. And so he moved the capital over to Constantinople, and that became known as the Second Rome. The Byzantine Empire became known as the Second Rome. I didn't Second Rome. know that. And the Byzantine Empire succeeded, whereas the Western Empire, Western Empire fell in the early 400s. The Byzantine Empire did not fall until 1453. It outlasted the Western Empire by a thousand years. Now, this is a Greek-speaking empire, an empire that uses the Greek Cyrillic alphabet, which is a direct derivative of Paleo-Hebrew, which was supposedly brought into the island of Thebes in around 1500 BC as directly transmitted from Moshe at, at the, at the Mount Sinai where the alphabet was first given by who the hand of Yah. Now, 
So you have this you have this alphabet that is formed initially with the handwriting of Yah on the sapphires given to Moshe, and the alphabet becomes the marker that sets apart the chosen people from the other people. And so this setting apart with the Aleph Beit is right, right? What does Mashiach say? I am the Aleph and the Tav. I am your alphabet. I am the 22 words of creation, right? And this is what he says, right? Right. And so you see a direct line of the Paleo-Hebrew into the Greek Cyrillic. And the Greek Cyrillic then is the language that is being written in the Byzantine Empire. This is why all the New Testament was captured in the Greek language, because Constantine was going to make certain that this was going to be the comprehensive amalgamated religion of the Greek Empire, which they called Byzantium. Now, when Constantinople finally fell in 1480-1453, the daughter of the last king of the Byzantine Empire, whose name was Zoe Paleolog, she was shipped out to Rome, and Rome tried to convert it to Catholicism with the intent of having her marry the Russian king and convert him to the Roman church because Rome was saying, okay, that's the end of them. Now we're going to recapture our title as the world champion. And so they sent Zoe Paleolog, Paleolog to Moscow to marry Ivan III. She did marry Ivan III, converted to Eastern Orthodoxy again, and became known as Sophia. And the, the Western church was entirely and thoroughly, completely rejected that the great schism that happened between the East and the West was so intense, they wouldn't even, the patriarch of the Orthodox Church would not talk to the Pope for a thousand years. Mm-hmm. They were like, no, forget it. We're not talking to you. We're nothing to do with you. And so what do you see happen now? Because Zoe Paleolog marries Ivan III in Moscow, Moscow becomes the heir to the Byzantine Empire. Wow. And so the crown of the Byzantine Empire and its Cyrillic alphabet transmits up to Moscow, and Moscow becomes what? It becomes the new Constantinople. It becomes the new head of Byzantium. And, Jessica, it remains right now the head of the Byzantine Empire, right this very minute. Now, there was a 70-year period of the famine of the word, and we're going to get to that, that 70-year period of the famine of the word, which is the riding of the red horse. It is the riding of the red horse. And in wow. that 70-year period, we had this famine of the word. But now you see that it's back. Now, what you this see is competing, so good. <laughs> so we good. talked about this a little bit before. What you see competing is first Rome. Now, when first Rome collapses around, you know, circa 8420, the second Rome, when, when it collapsed, you know, Rome went from the most literate society on earth to absolutely bleak. I mean, illiteracy was being taught. Nobody could read. Nobody could write. And as a consequence... Mankind fell into the dark ages. And so, wait, go back. We still gotta, we, gotta, we gotta catch this, just one second. So what you see is now, when, once it collapsed, a second Rome was created when there was this warring German clan under Charlemagne, this guy's name was Charlemagne. And he was an ardent supporter of the Pope and the papacy and Rome. And he wanted to defend Rome. He wanted to defend the papacy. He wanted to defend Catholicism. And so in 8800, he who could not read or write was appointed the emperor over the Holy Roman Empire, which was neither holy nor Roman. It was actually a Germanic group of war tribes that had formed together and they formed the Second Rome, the Holy Roman Empire, or the Second Reich, the Second Reich. And they ruled Europe politically for a thousand years, from 800 AD to 1800 AD. 
And then if things fell apart for the church, uh, following the, the rise of Napoleon, and Napoleon conquered all of Europe, when, when Napoleon conquered all of Europe, he, had, he was no friend of the papacy, and he installed Napoleonic law, and he did a number of other things. And so there was a period there from about 1800, uh, uh, well, actually from the, all of the 1800s, where Napoleon's reign, Napoleon's dominance, would hold throughout all of Europe. And so literally all of the continent is on what they call the Napoleonic Code. That's the codified system of law, which every country in the continent, the continental Europe, you know, the UK is on the common law, but the, but the continental Europe is on the Napoleonic Code. That's what, because of what Napoleon did. He imposed that on all of Europe. And so as a consequence, we saw this collapse of Rome, second Rome, and the rise of Napoleon. Now, once the Napoleonic Code thing was over, we're going to, let's go to the next slide now. Let's see what happens. Because Adolf Hitler would create the third Rome, the third Reich. And the claim of the third Reich is that we're going to have dominance for a thousand years. We're going to create Rome again. We're going to create the supremacy of Rome, the supremacy of Rome is going to rule again over all of the Western world, and it's going to rule for a 1,000 years as it did from 800 to 1800. Okay, let's take a look at the next slide. Okay, wait a minute, go back. I'm sorry, we left, oh, I didn't get a chance to look at that. Okay, in the interim period between 1800 and 1934, Rome, through its Jesus Adamin, elects to use subterfuge, coercion, and violence to destabilize Byzantium, now ruled from Moscow under a German family tied to the Second Reich by blood. They were all Habsburgs, okay? The Tsars, they, they claim they, had, they were a different bloodline, but the, but the fact is they were Habsburgs by blood. And they were, they were cousins of the Kaiser in Germany, and they were cousins to the wow. king of England. Yeah, they were first cousins. You ought to see, you ought to see the picture between the, the king of England and, and, and Tsar Nicholas II. I mean, they're... Spitting images of each other. Okay. So good. <laughs> okay. Just yeah. infiltrate the Russian Orthodox hierarchy, right? The Jesuit order, right? Now I didn't put in here the, the, the radical, the extreme oath of the Jesuits, but the Jesuits have the right to, to break any law, any standard, any moral right. code, any, anything in order to use force to, uh, to solidify, to make sure mm -hmm. that the papacy remains supreme. And they operate as a covert operation, and they operate all over the world. So Jesuit, the Jesuits, they infiltrate the Russian Orthodox hierarchy. Now, this begins in the mid-1800s, right? And their operatives begin to work for the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in St. Petersburg. Now, this is not Nicholas, who died in the 20th century. This is Alexander II. Now, there is a Jesuit. I am, yeah, exactly. So when you talk about, I always talk about that when the Jesuits identify themselves in France, the je suis, je suis, I am, je, I am a Jesuit, right? So what you see with, but what you see happening in Russia is when Alexander II was assassinated in St. Petersburg, they built this church. Now the church stands there to this day. It's called the Church on Spilled Blood. It was built right at the site of his assassination, the Church on Spilled Blood, okay? And it was extremely disruptive. All right. And they also engineered the assassination of two American presidents, James Garfield and William McKinley. Now, arguably, some people think that the Jesuits also took out uh, Abraham Lincoln. But Garfield was assassinated because he tried to put America on a silver standard. And McKinley was assassinated because he tried to put America on a gold standard. 
And so you had the Jesuits operating uh, clandestinely in the United States, and they were attacking Eastern Orthodoxy on the right. So first, what was taking place in Russia was to undermine the catechism, if you will, the theology of Eastern Orthodoxy by teaching only a Jesuit, uh, a Jesuit approach to what, to what the Orthodox would be, only a Jesuit approach, okay? And they were attacking the Protestants in the United States. So you have to remember, the United States was formed as a Protestant enterprise, right? All of the people that came here, whether you're talking about it coming to Cape Cod, you know, Plymouth Rock, those pilgrims that came here as Puritans, the Puritans were relying upon the 1560 Geneva. The 1560 Geneva outright says in its margins that the Pope is Antichrist, period. John Calvin didn't hesitate right. to use that identification. And so the Puritans right. were of that opinion. And what about uh, the Quakers that came in, into Pennsylvania? Those Quakers were also Protestants. What about the Protestants that came into Virginia? Uh, you know, you're talking about this was a Protestant nation and Catholicism was outlawed in the 12 colonies. It was outlawed. No Catholics allowed, no, no Catholicism. It was outlawed. And basically and, it was those who were, they were protesting, right? So that's where you get the word pro Protestant is it's because they were protesting the papacy, right? Well, sure. I mean, you know, Protestantism they were protesters. Martin Luther's, Martin Luther's protesting his 95 mm -hmm. theses that he right. acted before. And, uh, uh, you know, and he was protesting what? Indulgences primarily where you pay to be able to commit sin. Now, right. back, right. In, the, back in, the, in the Hebrew days, you just cough up a goat. But by the time you get to the Catholic Church, it took real money, right? You can't just bring in a lamb, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, <laughs> David. But anyway, so what you see here is that this history that was going on in the U.S. is that you had this constant undermining that came in from Catholicism. And a lot of this undermining was taking place in their intellectual hotbed in Vienna, where they had protected uh, places for these uh, coercive agents to work. So in Vienna, in the 1860s, you found Sigmund Freud, you found uh, uh, Karl Marx, or you found, uh, you know, Vladimir, well, not Vladimir Lenin, but you, the, the founders of, of, uh, of communism are all working in and out of Vienna, right? Wow. Because that is a holy Catholic nation, and the Jesuits, I mean, where did the Illuminati form in 1776? Vienna. It formed in Vienna, right? So you see that this was this is what was going on. Now, beyond the subterfuge and assassinations, a coalition emerged between Jesuit operatives and atheist Jews operating under the banner of Zionism to move together on both fronts, with the priority being capturing the natural resource wealth of Eastern Orthodoxy first and reducing it to a nation of a slave worker state wow. to create a slave worker state and imposing Jew Jewish atheism as expressed in the political methodology called communism on the followers of the Christian faith. Now that's what's going on in the United States right now. The same operatives are attempting to impose atheistic Judaism. Now when we talk about atheists, we talk about Jewish atheism. You're talking about an express disavowal of God. You're talking about guys that say, I don't believe in God. There's no reason for me to be in, believe in God. I don't believe in God. But I do believe in the Talmud. I do believe in the Talmud. I do believe in the teachings of the rabbis, right? And so it's very plausible and plausible to have a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah for an atheist who does not believe in God at all, but believes only in the Talmud. And the political ideology of the Talmud is communism. 
And so you have, so what you have is they have to get rid of the followers of the Christian faith. And so you see on one hand, the Jesuits will come in and say, anybody who's not Catholic needs to be murdered anyway. So kill them off anyway. And then whatever is left, we'll proselytize and we'll bring them into the Catholic faith later. But in the meantime, get rid of those pesky, rotten Protestants by any means possible. So this is what wow. they did to Russia first. They created it into a slave state. Oh, it's a worker state. You know, workers of the world unite in abject poverty. Everybody's going to be equally poor, right? And equally have nothing. And the 1% elitist will sit here fat, you know, eating eating the fat uh, the fat off the land as I mean you're not even talking about 1%. You're talking less than one tenth of 1%. You're talking about one one hundredth of 1% who's sucking all the wealth into their pockets. You know, there was a time when Leon and Brezhnev's daughter during the, you know, in the early 80s in, in Moscow, right? Now in Moscow, you know, beautiful city. But, you know, they have they have these roads and the roads would have these center lanes in them. And the center lanes were were just were specifically marked for government vehicles. Only government vehicles could drive there and they could drive at any speed they wanted to. No car could be there. Well, there weren't any cars on the roads then anyway, because nobody could afford a car. I mean, and if you could, you ended up with some lot of breaks down every other day or a Volga that breaks down every third day. But when the when the average Russian was struggling to get a car like a Lada, which is like a bad Russian-built Fiat. Leonid Brezhnev's daughter is screaming down the roads in Moscow in her red Ferrari. Right? That give you an example. They had the, the leadership had massive amounts of wealth and everybody else dead broke, living in poverty, giving what the government thought you needed, which is, you know, what the government thinks the average person needs. Right. It's an apartment that is 16 by 24 with a balcony, okay? And you got one great room that doubles as the master bedroom, the dining room, the living room, and the kids' bedroom. That's one room, right? I mean, I've been in these apartments, I've seen them, and they, they build them by the thousands. That's what you need. You don't need any more than that. You don't need, you may want more than that, but it's not what you want. It's to each according to what he needs, in my opinion, and from each according to his ability, in my opinion. And so you have people in the United States clamoring we want communism. We want communism. You want to become a worker slave in a worker state that's impoverished for the rest of your life, where the state tells you what to do and nobody does anything? You know, like they used to say, we pretend to work and the state pretends to pay us, right? They just mm -hmm. lived in abject poverty. Anybody who's ever been in Russia and been in the Soviet Union knows exactly what it looks like, okay? Communism. And so this is what happened in Russia. Now you look here, now you see here. Imposing Jewish atheism is expressed in political methodology called communism, which was written by a guy named Victor Mordecai, who was, whose pen name was Karl Marx, and was enforced by Vladimir Ulyanov, who called himself Lenin, and Joseph Jugashvili, who called himself Stalin, right? And, uh, and uh, Leon, Leo Trotsky, whose name was uh, Leon. Um, anyway, they were all atheist Jews. The whole leadership in Russia was all atheist Jews, all of them. All of them, the KGB, the GRU, all of them. And what did they do? This effort was joined and funded. Communism, the communist overthrow of, the, of Russia was joined and funded by the Rothschild Bank in the UK, the Rothschild Bank, the Rockefeller Bank in the United States, Carnegie in the United States, and the Schiff family. Jacob Schiff is the one who personally ordered the execution of the Tsar and his family. Jacob Schiff. Wow. 
Okay. My mind is blown tonight, Dr. B. All right, let's keep going. Okay. Now, in 1913, the Federal Reserve was formed, and the income tax, which violated the Constitution, was adopted, right? The 16th Amendment, 1913. In 1917, the Red Army, Krasnya Armia, they say in Russia, Krasnya Army, the Red Army was organized under Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks, which would engage in the communist overthrow of Byzantium in Russia and impose a Jewish atheist regiment which would then slaughter 66 million Eastern Orthodox believers under this doctrine, okay? Now, here's what people don't wanna, here's what, here's what the average American doesn't wanna know. You know, we, we have always assumed that, gee, if we go to war and we, you know, we fight these other countries, we can retain our freedom. No one ever conceived, did, did it ever cross anyone's mind in America that the American government might turn on its own people and Mm -hmm. want to kill its own people like the Russian government did there. And they did, they turned on their own people and Stalin began slaughtering them wholesale. I mean, things like putting putting a whole village on a train, taking them out to mid-Siberia in the middle of winter and kicking them off the train and say, here you go, here's your gulag, hope you make it, right? Yeah, further reading, yeah, Ruler of Evil by F. Tupper Sassi, yeah, good, thanks Jeremy for that tip. You can also read, if you really wanna get an idea of what the individual stories look like, read the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Right. And, you know, well, the Freemasons, the Jesuits, and they're all in the same group. They're all tied one another. The, 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 the Jesuits completely overthrew the Freemasons back in the uh, 1500s. Uh, the Scottish Rite Freemasonry was overthrown by the Jesuits in order to w- do what? Take down the Protestant Reformation that was taking place in Britain to take it to up uh, to uh, get it out from the interior through subterfuge and coercion. OK, now. The Bolshevik, the Bolshevik army. They committed, they killed 66 million Eastern Orthodox believers. And the very first thing they did after they seized control of Russia was to knock all the crosses off the church, right? I've said this before, right? If they knocked all the crosses off the churches, they put they put movie theaters in the biggest churches. And the most important church in Russia was Christ Our Savior Church, right in downtown Moscow. They bladed it. They bladed it. They were going to put up a 110-story building with a 70-story statue of Lenin on top to celebrate the, the rise of communism over that stupid faith, mm. right? Over that stupid faith. And they couldn't get the building built because it was on a swamp. So instead they put in a swimming pool. And after the Jeez. Soviet fell, fell, Yuri Lushkov, the mayor of Russia, the very first thing he did was to rebuild Christ our Savior Church right on that very same spot. So it's back up. Sorry, I hate to break the news to you, Joe. You're dead now. And that place where you bladed, it's got the church standing right there where you didn't want it to be. Sorry. So sorry, Charlie. And something else to, for you too, Joe. There's crosses on all those churches that you knocked off. Okay, They all came back. You didn't. Those crosses did. Sorry about that. But what you, when you look at the 20th century, more people were killed by their own government in the 20th century than were killed in all the wars combined. Okay, you got 66 billion in Russia. You got close to 100 million killed in China. You got another 8 million killed in Cambodia. You know, you have millions on millions on millions of people killed under this doctrine of communism. So people want to hold up the sickle and hammer? You know, hold up the sickle and hammer. But when you do, get in your bathtub and fill it with human blood so you can get the real feel of it. Okay? So you can get the real feel of it. What's the real feel of it? You want to put up the sickle and hammer? Then you wear the blood of 200 million people that died in the last century behind that marker. 200 million people that died behind that marker. Put that blood in your cup, smoke it. 
Anyway, so this is what you see with this communism, right? Now, in 1921, what happens? The Federal Reserve that was created in 1913 seized control of the money supply in the United States and immediately began orchestrating a financial collapse and the seizure of private assets and ultimately all of the gold in the United States, which began in earnest in October of 1929. So what you had was the Federal Reserve was formed they immediately started manipulating interest rates and they lowered the interest rates below the market rate. And so everybody was getting rich. Wow, let's invest, let's do this. And they all got out there and, and when they got everybody sucked into investing in that wall in that Wall Street in October of 1929, okay, time to cash in. And JP Morgan shorted everybody. Market started to collapse, complete credit, credit collapse. When, the, when there was a complete credit collapse, the whole thing collapsed and what happened? Well, the banks we mentioned before that financed that financed the revolution in Russia, they proceeded to buy up all of the property that was being foreclosed that nobody could hold anymore. Right. They bought it all up. Well, thank you. I'm sorry you can't keep your farm. We're going to take it. I'm sorry right. you can't keep that building. We're going to take it. Foreclose, foreclose, foreclose. They grabbed 90% of the assets in the country. Now, they're orchestrating this same thing again. Right now, as we speak right now, they're orchestrating the exact same thing again. Right now, right this very minute. And so this, so you see this collapse of the seizure of private assets. And then I think it was in 1934 that FDR, working on behalf of the banks, comes out and makes gold illegal. Okay, everybody, your gold's now illegal. Everybody has to give up gold. If we catch you with gold, you're going to prison for 10 years. So give up your gold. And so all Americans gave up their gold. And you know what he did with the gold? He eventually gave it up too. All right. But you see that the Federal Reserve did this. All right. Now let's go to the next slide. And let's talk about a little bit of the history behind this Federal Reserve Act and this Income Tax Act. Okay. So for the first time in all human history, peace was taken away from the entire earth with the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand and his wife. I believe it was in July of 1914 by agents of Eastern Orthodoxy, returning the favor to Roman interests, thereby terminating the last heir to the direct descendants of the leadership of the Holy Roman Empire, the Second Reich. Now you see what happened there. You know, if you take a look at this closely, you'll see that the operative arm of the Holy Roman Empire came out of Vienna, not out of Germany, because Germany was always kind of a little bit disorganized. And you had what? You had the Lutherans up there who were kind of in the face of the Pope saying, we're gonna fight against you, we're gonna fight against you. Vienna never fought against Rome. Vienna to this day, Austria to this day, is a completely Catholic nation. And it was an empire, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. And it was run by this guy named Franz Joseph. Well, Franz Joseph had a son. And his son was supposed to take over. And Franz Joseph could step down. And they were planning about 1880. Franz Joseph was going to retire and give it to his son. But his son was a narcissist. And he got carried away. And he got carried away with his girlfriend. And ultimately... He took his girlfriend out into the woods and murdered her and killed himself. And that was the end of the air, right? So now Franz Joseph is stuck running this empire well up into his 80s. Like, I want out of here. I want out of here. So finally, he finds an heir. And the heir that he found was Archduke Ferdinand, who was kind of related. This guy was competent. He was going to be able to do this. And so Franz Joseph was going to turn over the empire, which was the remnant of the Holy Roman Empire, the Second Reich, to Archduke Ferdinand, right? But you have to remember, the Russians figured out who it was that had assassinated, that had assassinated 
uh, Alexander II, that it was Jesuits. They knew it. They knew that the Jesuits had been operating to overthrow Eastern Orthodoxy. So it was this Serbian who was operating on the thing called the Black Hand who shot Archduke Ferdinand and his wife in downtown Sarajevo, right? Very well, or there's a great movie on that, by the way, that, that was put out not too long ago, a great uh, capture biography of it. But yeah, and also the Titanic, right? You had opponents to the creation of the Federal Reserve. Now, shall we say it? Can we say it? I personally believe, I'm not going to sit here and say I can prove it, but I personally believe that the Titanic was uh, insurance fraud. They had this ship, they went out there, blah, 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 and they sold all these all this insurance. And then after they sold all this insurance on the on the boat, then they had the all the guys who were opposed to the Federal Reserve happened to be on that boat, and then that boat just conspicuously goes down. Yeah, Strauss, the head of uh, May Company, right? I think it was May Company, Macy's, the head of Macy's, he was on that boat and he and he went down. And John Astor was on that boat and he went down. And so the, the opposition to the Federal Reserve died on the Titanic, and they made a ton of money on the insurance claim. And boom, here we go, all right? So here we go. Uh, so what you see is now you're going to see Archduke Ferdinand now is going to begin to operate. In fact, it was Archduke Ferdinand. Remember, that he was in power throughout all of the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, 1900. And all the way on up until until Archduke Ferdinand is about to succeed to the throne in 1914. Arch, Franz Joseph is still in power. He was the one that orchestrated this underhanded work of these two guys that assassinated Garfield and McKinley, right? They were, if you look, you'll find out they were foreign nationals that came into the United States and did this, this assassination. Now, the War of 1914, yeah, yeah, right, there you go, insurance fraud, there you go, shine the light, you hit it, you hit it. Yep, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Titanic was the twin towers of the 21st century. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's so true. Here you go. You guys are on it. So the War of 1914 correctly labeled as the first World War or World War I, right? We call this World War I because it's the first time that peace has been taken from the whole earth. Peace has been taken from the whole earth, Okay. And what? It never ended. Instead, the Treaty of Versailles virtually guaranteed the rebuilding of weaponry and the reestablishment of military powers in Europe, given its draconian sanctions of reparations. Hitler successfully beat the sanctions, rearmed Germany with the express intent to engage in war. I mean, you go and you listen to Hitler's rhetoric. We are a people of war. We're looking forward to rebuilding so we can go to war. The intent is to go to war. We're going to war because we're a warlike people and we want to go to war. Everybody's well, you can make a lot of money off of going to war, Dr. Pigeon. You can make a lot yeah. of money off of it, too. Yeah, you go, and you, you go and you bash everybody else's infrastructure, then yours is the only infrastructure left. Guess whose materials you buy after that? Right. So, so again, and he was going to war to assert the interest of Rome in reestablishing the Reich. Wow. He was the reason Germany was going to war was to reestablish Rome, right? The Third Rome. They called themselves the Third Rome, the Third Reich. They called themselves the Third Rome. We're going to reestablish Roman hegemony, and we're going to do it by blunt force, and then we're going to do it over the over the first over to Europe, over Europe, and then over the world on behalf of who? The express instructions of Jesus Adamim. Now they try they try to cover this stuff, but I guarantee you that uh, Hitler was trying to put himself in the place of Charlemagne. I'm going to create the Reich again, and it's going to rule for. I mean, go back and look at the look at the rhetoric. They'll tell you that the Reich is going to rule for a thousand years, right? 
Germany, Uber, Deutschland, Uber, alles. Germany over everything. Germany over everything. Deutschland, Uber, alles. Why Deutschland, Uber, alles? Because it's Reich. It's the third Rome. Okay? Trying to make this as clear as I can. So peace is taken away from the earth in 1914 for the first time, the whole earth. Okay, let's go to the next slide here. Following the resumption of hostilities, which also engulfed the whole world and which was correctly labeled as the Second World War or World War II, Germany competed with the United States not to determine the winner, but to determine who would be the military arm of the Third Reich. That's all that, that World War II was about. We think, oh, we're the good guys, and we went over there to bash the Germans because they're the bad guys, right? You know, there's been many, many discussions of Americans who came upon a German camp, and they'd come upon the German camp, and the Germans are sitting around the fire having a Bible study when we opened up on them, right? Wow. They were sitting around having a Bible study, right? And, you know, so here we are. And so what, what's the truth of it? The truth of it was we were competing with German Germany to see who was going to be the military arm of the Third Reich. Who's going to be the military master of the world? Is it going to be Germans or is it going to be Americans? Wow. Right? This is why most of the German leadership, including its Gestapo, were imported into the United States to covertly govern America. Now, I mean, you know, look, people don't want to admit this. They don't want to know this. But look, they were imported into America under an organization now called the Central Intelligence Agency. The Gestapo came here and formed. We brought in all these hierarchy, all these upper hierarchy. You're talking about guys who would routinely terrorize Jews in Germany, terrorize other people in Germany, gather up people, put them in concentration camps, run an intelligence operation, run around in their black leather coats with this authority to assassinate and execute anybody they wanted to whenever they wanted to. These are the guys we imported and brought them into the United States to create our intelligence agency, initially called the OSS, but what became the Central Intelligence Agency whose loyalty has never been to the United States. Oh it has always been to Rome. Always. Wow, Dr. P, you are on fire tonight. So good. You're flowing. Wow. Right. So okay. now, in addition to that, we also had Operation Paperclip, right? Operation Paperclip. Oh, my goodness. Now, yeah. Operation Paperclip brought in... All, now, I'm telling you, when Trump released... The JFK documents in 2018. Yeah, we'll get to that. MK Ultra, right? When you get to, when you when Trump released documents in 2018 on the JFK um, JFK deal, what did what was in those documents? We found out that Hitler survived, and that Hitler himself was consulting to the CIA in the 1950s and the early 1960s. Most of the upper end leadership of Germany, including Joseph Mengele, including Martin Berman. And, and Gorman and uh, Otto Skrzynski were living in the United States. They were living in the United States. Joseph Mengele, that pervert, ended up working with uh, the Angel of Death. He ended up yeah. working with what's his name, the guy, um, the guy who wrote the the what was it the 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 um, McKinsey report? What was that? The McKinsey report. McKinsey report. The guy who was molesting children to prove his theories on sexuality and, and molesting babies. To prove his theories on sexuality. Mengele was working with him, right? But we know now, in addition, as some of the guys have mentioned here in the comments, NASA was completely staffed with German guys who had been developing the V the V2 rockets in Germany. All those guys were imported to create NASA in uh, in Florida. We imported their German scientists who would later create the nuclear bomb 
or that would help create the nuclear bomb in the United States, including uh, uh, Oppenheimer and, and Einstein, right? And so, you know, these guys created, they, they unleashed the angel of death on, the, on this planet, right? Oppenheimer did. And by the way, he was a notorious Satanist, Oppenheimer. And so you see, uh, that we, so we, we fund NASA, we fund this, we fund the CIA, we bring in all these consultants, we have all these guys that are essentially all upper end German leadership, all upper end German leadership. And then we're surprised, you know, then, then you're wondering, well, uh, well, wait a minute, I thought we beat the Germans. Yeah, well, so did the British. The British thought we won World War II, too. But if you look at where the situation is with the EU, you know, I did a big interview back in 20, whatever it was, 2018, maybe, 2017, maybe. I did an interview in Europe. Yeah. The Jewish biochemist backed by the CIA who experimented on thousands. Now, I'm telling you, the kinds of experiments he did were obscene to even describe them. They're obscene to even describe them. He liked the idea of, you know, twins in particular that he could experiment with. And, you know, so, yeah, Mengele, I mean, you know, uh, just an offensive guy, right? But, you know, and I've, I've, I, of course, have the picture, and you can, in fact, you can look it up online if you want. There's Here's the picture of George H.W. Bush as a teenager sitting in the same room with Dr. Mengele and Martin Borman and Otto Skorzynski and his dad and his mom in their house in Germany, in their house in Germany in the 1930s, right? Nobody wants to talk about that, but Otto Skorzynski is the one that released the photo. Skorzynski that released it. So at any rate, so when we talk about this, so you see, you see that this interface between Rome and the United States has been made complete. When your Capitol building looks like the Vatican, and the mall in front of the Capitol has a mock-up of the obelisk that's in St. Peter's Square, you got a pretty good idea that you're kind of tied to Rome. And Rome succeeded in overthrowing in this law that prevented Catholics from coming into the country in the late 1800s. They could, by, by assassinating presidents, they were able to establish themselves, and the church has since greatly established itself. And how established are they in the United States now? Well, seven of the nine Supreme Court judges are tied directly to Rome. Wow. Seven of the nine, right? And the three appointed by Trump were all Jesuits. So, you know, you, you figure it out, right? You shall know them by their fruit. Okay. So, so now we see what? Since World War II, there have been 280 armed conflicts around the world. 240 of which were initiated by the United States on behalf of what? Roman hegemony, on behalf of the Reich. Now, who's controlling the EU right now? All children of the Third Reich. I mean, you're talking about the sons and daughters of guys who were upper echelon leaders in the Third Reich. They're all holding office in the EU in, in Brussels. And none of them are elected, by the way. And the upper echelon of the Catholic Church are all former, you know, children of the Third Reich. So, when, and, you know, and so Niall Farage, Nigel Farage in, in Britain, he said, you know, he came into the EU and he said, hey, look, you guys are forming an army. I thought we won the war. What is this? So this is why Britain moved forward on the Brexit, was to leave the Third Reich, to leave Rome, right? Dr. P, wow. That's a lot. Yeah. It all makes sense. It just all fits together. And so who do you think it was? Where do you think the orders came from 
to do this pandemic? The papacy. Rome. Where'd you go, Dr. P? Oh, yes. no. Oh. That, <laughs> I was I'm like, just no, letting it leave. sink in. You're the one who said it. I'm letting it sink in. Yeah. You think about it for a minute, and you think about where the highest number of wow. deaths in Europe were, right? Right in Milano, right? Right in Milano. And so what you see is you see, and now you see Rome flexing its muscle. Watch what we're going to do to the whole earth. We're going to do it to the whole earth. Everybody run in fear because we have a deadly virus. You go back and you look at Trump's speech when he first announced it. This is a deadly virus. This is a deadly, deadly virus, right? That's Trump telling us that. As we go into lockdown, as the constitution is completely terminated, as your human rights are ended, as you're forced into a lockdown, as you're forced into a mask, as you're forced into contact tracing, as you're forced into quarantine when you're not sick, and you have to be tested when you have no symptoms, because this, unlike any other disease, maybe you may be asymptomatic. If you're asymptomatic, you're not sick. And if you're not sick, there's no case. But for the first time, asymptomatic people have to be tested. Asymptomatic people have to be traced. Asymptomatic people have to be quarantined. Asymptomatic people have to wear a mask at all material times. You used to have freedom of speech, you don't anymore. You used to have freedom of association, you don't anymore. You used to have freedom of practice of religion, you don't anymore. You don't have any freedoms. You don't have any freedoms. You think you have freedoms, you don't have any freedoms. You have freedoms to self-report on yourself. That's what you have. You have the freedom to report on yourself. You have no other freedom. So it's basically communism repackaged. Well, we haven't gotten to absolute perfect communism, but we're on a you know we're on we're on a bullet train. Well, that's what I'm saying. Just the whole the whole idea is communism, but just repackaged, so that nobody is the wiser, right? So no one is the wiser as to what is happening. It reminds me of the frogs, who were very comfortable in the warm water until they were, until boiled, they were boiled to death. death. Yeah. yeah. No kidding. Well, I mean, you know, look, you have a, a wonderful psyop going on in the country right now which is Trump's going to come back and make America great again. You know, it was going to happen, you know, on November 15th, then it was going to happen on December 15th, then it was going to happen on January 6th, then it was going to happen on January 20th, then it was going to happen on March 1st, then it was going to happen on April 15th. Now it's going to happen sometime in August. And there are people still believing in this hopium. It's absolute, look, you think you want Trump to come back when he is the one that put three Jesuits onto the Supreme Court? You want Trump to come back? When he is the one that initiated this lockdown, you want Trump to come back when he's the one that put Operation Warp Speed in place, paying your state government to initiate a police state in your state with federal money that didn't exist. He created it. There was no budget item for it. They just put out six and a half trillion bucks that otherwise didn't exist. They just printed it and said, here you go. And he dropped that money on your state government and said, if you want to keep the money, create a police state. Create a police state in your state. Then you can keep the money. And guess what? Guess what? The politicians that you thought were representing you aren't. They're representing their wallet. And they all sold themselves out in order to, in order to terminate your constitution, in order to terminate your American way of life, in order to terminate your freedoms. And he didn't just take your freedoms. And they didn't just take your American way of life or your state's way of life or your culture. They took their own children. 
They took their own children's freedom. They took their own children's future. They took their friends. They took their families. They took all of it. They took all of that away to impose what is going to be a death camp march into adroit killing communism. And when you look at it, you know, I look at it very point, I look at it very clear glasses. There is a genocide going on in the United States right now. It's being hidden. They don't want to tell you it's a genocide. And when people start dropping dead from this genocide in huge amounts, they're going to tell you that it's the second wave of a virus that's uncontrollable, not from their genocide. You think they're ever going to tell you, oh, yeah, we killed all you people. They're never going to tell you that. They're never going to tell you that. But it's their genocide. And why do they want a genocide? Because this place is no longer the military arm of Rome. The military arm of Rome, the one that's been chosen to be the military arm of Rome now, is China, not the United States. And so we have an orchestration going on right now. And the orchestration going on right now is who's going to go to, you remember the movie, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly? Yes, sir. Okay, one of my favorite movies. And I particularly like the graveyard scene, right? So you got the good over here, and then you got the ugly over here, and then you got the bad over here, right? And the cameras, there's no words, right? It just goes from face to face to face. And then it picks up the tempo while the music's going on. And they're going, and you know, and Tuco's sweating, right? And the ugly's starting, or the bad's starting to sweat. The only guy not sweating, Clint Eastwood. And on it goes, right? And, and now the question is, the whole time in this triangle is, okay, so who's going to shoot who? Because if the good shoots the bad, and the ugly shoots the good, and the bad shoots the ugly, all three of them are dead. So the question is, who's going to shoot who? Big question. What nobody knew was that Clint Eastwood had emptied the handgun of, of the ugly, Tuco. And so he only had to shoot the bad because the ugly couldn't shoot anybody, right? So he knew exactly who he was going to shoot. That's why he wasn't sweating. But if you look at that now, let's compare that. Let's take that same triangle and let's put China, Russia, and the United States in that triangle. Same triangle, okay? So if you can get Russia to go to war with the United States in that triangle, if you can get Russia to go to, to go to war with the United States, who's the one left standing in that triangle? China. Now, if you're Russia and you're looking at that, you're saying, well, if I can get China to go to war with the United States, who's the one left standing? Russia. But our own leadership was doing everything they could to create a war between the United States and Russia. Who do you think they're working for? Just a question. It's just a question. Okay, let's get back into the slides. All right. And Yahusha answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Mashiach, and shall deceive many. Now, we know this is going on right now, right? We've got this guy in Israel, and we've got other guys all over the world. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Okay, so that means that these wars and rumors of wars are going to continue for a long time. After peace has been taken away from the world, it's going to continue for a long time. That's what he's trying to tell you. So peace has now been taken from the whole earth, and we have a constant stream of wars and rumors of wars, constant stream. I mean, since World War I broke out, there has never been a cessation of hostilities. Never. I mean, it's just going on all over the world, right? The Red Horse actually began to ride with America's Civil War and has continued 
relentlessly. All right. Now, now we face the ultimate challenge, World War III. Okay, let's continue. Well, did you read this right here? The Red Horse began to ride. Yeah, the Red with Horse began to ride with America's Civil War and this continued <clears throat> relentlessly. Okay, sorry. Okay. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and they shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Does wow. the name matter? Yeah, that's why you're going to be afflicted. Me. That's why you're going to be hated. It's because of the, it comes back to the name over and over again, right? Over and over again. Okay, let's take a look at the next slide here. Okay, now we talk about nation. Now, the word there in the Greek is ethnos, right? For nation shall rise against nation, ethnos, and kingdom, basilia, against kingdom, Bastidia, and there should be famines, pestilences, that is plagues or diseases and earthquakes, the Greek word there is seismos, in diverse places. Now we know without, I don't have to put the charts up here, most of you guys know that we have gone into a logarithmic progression of earthquakes. The average number in 1990 was 7,000 earthquakes a year, and now it's over 160,000 quakes a year worldwide. I mean, the place is always shaking, rattling and rolling, and the quakes are getting bigger and larger, and they're being found all over the place, right? And so we know that's going on. Now, how about plague or diseases? Well, we've got a, you know, we've got a pandemic that supposedly is a worldwide pandemic that is now all over the world. I mean, that's what you would call a pestilence, right? It's a worldwide plague, a worldwide disease. And there should be famines. Well, of course, there's famines all over the world. And the famines are going to increase. This year is going to be a big year for famine, in case you're wondering. And now when we talk about nation against nation, nation against nation does not mean political nation states, but rather culturally defined nations. Now, this is a prediction of civil war as one discrete cultural group rises up against another. You see, inside the United States, there are many nations, right? Whether you're talking about the various, uh, you know, first nations that are here, you know, the tribal nations that are here, whether you're talking about the tribes in the inner city, where you're talking, whether you're talking about inner city Irish, inner city Germans, you know, you know what I'm talking about? You have tribes and cultural configurations that have joined together. Subcultures. Yeah. yeah, subcultures, right? You would call it subcultures. But these are the nations. These are the nations because, you know, your, your allegiance, your loyalty, it, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't patriots to put the flag up and say, I'm willing to fight for the Constitution of the United States. Where are you now? What happened to your oath? That's another story. But when you're talking about the average person, the average person has a loyal to a, is loyal to a subculture. They have a loyalty to a subcultural group. And those subcultural groups are going to rise up one against the other in order to try to survive in what's coming. That's nation against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. I mean, you know, you have the, you know, the United Kingdom is one of the few kingdoms left, and it claims to be united. Well, you know, you know, don't tell it to the Irish about being united. Don't tell it to the Welsh about being united. And for that matter, don't tell it to the Scots about being united. Those, those three clans don't even speak English. And, you know, so we know that there is, there is definitely a, there is um, an underlying impetus to uh, terminate the united aspect of the United Kingdom in those cultures and to assert national sovereignty as the nation of Wales, the nation of Scotland, the nation of Ireland, et cetera. 
So this is a prediction of civil war. You see nation against nation, that's cultural subgroups, subcultures, one against another. Prediction of civil war, as one discrete cultural group rises up against another. Kingdom against kingdom can only happen in the UK, where what is united now won't be, won't be. Okay, let's keep going. All right, now, when we see, have we seen famine in diverse places? Of course we have. Have we seen plague and pestilence? Yes, all over the world. And of course, earthquakes are now off the chart, off the chart. And some of those earthquakes are flat terrifying. I mean, there was a quake that happened north of uh, New Zealand, 600 miles. Okay, let's see, National Plagues, Famine, Race Wars, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. There it is. Thanks, Jane. There was, uh, there was an earthquake that happened. It was like a 7.2 that happened 600 miles north of uh, yeah, children to rise up against parents to put them to death and you should be hated by all for my namesake. There it is, Matthew 10, 21. I mean, there it is. I mean, boom. Again, it's being hated for his namesake. And so, but like I say, that quake that happened 600 miles north of New Zealand was, I think, a 7.2. And then I think it was like four minutes later, 6.8 happened there again. And then four minutes later, they had a 6.4. I mean, when you have that kind of major quake, boom, and then boom, and then boom, right after another. I mean, you know, pretty soon that's starting to look like something to get nervous, really nervous about, right? Really nervous about, like the crust of the earth is splitting or something. You know what I mean? And we're going to see, we're going to see some earthquakes. I mean, the prediction of the earthquake to come is huge, right? Now, the hatred of those who are of the name comes and the desire of the world to kill us all for his namesake. Does the name matter now? What's in a name, right? Well, in his name, it's everything, right? Then we see here, Matthew 24, 10, 12. And then many shall be offended and betray one another and shall hate one another. Now, this is, now, I want to ask you, in the snowflake generation that we've got going on right now, are many people offended? They're offended by everything. They're offended by trees. They're offended by this. They're offended by mountains. They're offended by your flag. They're offended by your opinion. They're offended by your look. They're offended by your car. They're offended by your wealth. They're offended by your status. They're offended by where you live. They're offended by where you don't live. They're offended by what you say and offended by what you don't say. But they're offended, 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 right? As, you know, the Jeopardy contest said, you know, uh, the guy gives the answer and Alex Trebek says, well, your answer was correct, but so-and-so was greatly offended by that. So they get the points and such and such screamed louder than you. So wrong, you don't get any points whatsoever, right? Because everybody was offended by the fact that you got the right answer. I mean, they're saying right now that the school system is offensive because kids who get the right answers on math tests offend other kids. It offends other kids, right? And they shall betray one another. Well, that's the understatement of the year. I mean, when you, when you have no sense of loyalty, no sense of decency, guess what? You betray and shall hate one another. Well, that's again the understatement of the year. People hate each other. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. Oh, you mean like the news guys over there in, in the mainstream media? who are standing there deceiving everybody nonstop, 24-7, 365, with nonstop pallets of lies. You know, you, you know, if you really want to listen to CNN, do yourself a favor. Start by opening up your front door. Have a dump truck come by with 10 yards of cow maneuver and have them just drop it into your front door. That way you can get, you can stink the place up appropriately for when you turn on CNN, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and because the transgression of the Torah shall abound, now, I want to ask you, let me just ask you, Jessica, is the Torah being transgressed right now in the world? Absolutely. Sure. Moral he, he ethics, good. yes. Just, he was good, good as he was. Just in a sense of moral ethics, yeah. 
Yeah, it's just there are no more. There's no moral. There's no morality. Yeah. There's no morality at all. So the Torah is being completely trampled. So as the Torah is being completely trampled, no one has a sense of decency. No one has a sense of integrity. No one has a sense of morality. Why not? Because we've been demoralized. Right. People are being governed by their own understanding. And in their understanding, they lack morality. And therefore, up is down and down is up. And we live in a backward society. And it will get to the point where obviously we just seen how fear motivated everything that we are experiencing right now. When you go into a store, yah forbid, you do not have a mask on, you will be accosted. And these are people who probably more than likely um, are acting out of character. They are probably genuine people who are kind and considerate otherwise. But if you provoke their fear sensor sensories, forget it, they're off the charts. I had elderly women accost my daughter, a young girl, and threaten her with violence. Like she backed her car up and wanted to hit my daughter's car because my daughter was walking out of a FedEx uh, station and she she was outside entering her car and she took her mask off and this woman went off on her and this is an elderly woman who I'm sure on any other occasion Dr. Pigeon does not behave in such manner but again we see how people are getting to the point where they will turn on each other in a in a, on a drop of a dime yeah oh yeah in fact um, you know uh, I was reading an all news pipeline the other day. And uh, Susan Duclos published this piece talking about all the violent videos, you know, that are on YouTube yeah. of all these fights that have broken up because people are so nuts right now from all of this deprivation of their rights and this forced submission to this new communism that guess what? They go nuts. And now you see people breaking out all over the place and fighting each other for no reason. Right. Yeah. And they don't. Wow. And, you know, and a lot of the people that are doing the agenda do, that are doing the VAX protocol and that are doing the, you know, the, the other protocol, they don't know what they're doing either. They're just doing it because everybody else is doing it. Therefore, they have to do it. Well, I'm on board. What are you guys on board with? Well, I don't know. We're on board with this. Oh, OK. I'm, you know, put me in the march. I'm with you. Well, who's leading this? Thing? Don't have the idea. Well, you know who's got it, what the what the agenda is. Don't know that either. But everybody's marching. So I'm in the parade. Let's go. Let's go do it. Right. Yeah. This right? herd mentality. Right. They have this herd mentality. And again, fear is the perpetrator. Fear is the antithesis to love. And the word says that Yah is love. So I only imagine that the spirit of Antimashiach is a spirit of fear. It's a governing agent that rules with tyranny, tyranny and aggression. You know, many people talk about Ahab and Jezebel. But we don't, you know, Jezebel is present it's because Ahab allowed her to be. But, you know, Ahab wasn't a weak man because he was passive he was a weak man because he was compromised in fact it says that his father who governed over tear where we get the word tyrant or tyranny or terror he ruled over this and he was a violent man he was excellent in campaigning war while ahab was more ruthless than him but he was weak he had no genuine authority because he was compromised a compromised individual has no real authority so what do they have to do in order to govern well, they use tactics like fear and they use uh, all sorts of other tactics like paying you off and murdering you, right? We have individuals who may or may not have been in office who had people executed because they uh, posed a threat to uh, their lack of integrity. So, and you know who I'm talking about, 
But again, these individuals who lack the true and genuine authority to govern the people will use alternative methods to rule and that usually is injustice and violence and intimidation and fear because these are also motivating factors. They can also uh, get people to comply, which is you know, ultimately the, the whole point is to comply. Right, and to gain compliance. Right. To gain compliance. Right. right. So they want a herd mentality. They want people, uh, you know, thinking collectively. Uh, they want a collective consciousness so they can continue again to rule over the 99 percent of the population, uh, never really knowing how weak they are. Their infrastructure is uh, full of holes and uh, very weak. But when Yahuwah comes, these things will collapse along with the elements and uh, Yahuwah's people will prevail. I believe it. Amen. So yes, your question, is the Torah being transgressed? Yes, absolutely. Uh, they say, where is your L, right? Where is your Elohim? We put our trust yeah, where in is your horses L? and chariots. Yeah, horses and chariots, yeah, yeah. we will put our trust. Yeah. We can just, we can run all over you. Okay, but what's it say here in Matthew? But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this Besorah of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. All right, let's take a look at the next slide. Let's talk about this Besorah. Here we go. The Ruach Adonai is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to preach the Besorah unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Mm, hallelujah. To proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our Elohim, to comfort all that mourn, hallelujah. to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the Ruach of heaviness, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he might be glorified. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. i am uh, got my shofar here. Oops. Let me, um, hang on, Dr. P. Let me get it. All right. Can you, can you hear? So I thought we would either begin or conclude with the shofar. Did you get your shofar, Dr. P? No. Mm. <laughs> My shofar is still 2,600 miles away. Okay. Well, next time we're going to have it shipped back to you. All right. So we'll blow the shofar. Uh, you can conclude with prayer. And if we have time for questions, we'll go ahead and do that. Okay. Okay. All right. Let us, let us pray. It is in the Ruach HaKodesh that we come together to gather and pray. And those of us who are in this family join together to lift up the name of the Yahweh's Devaot, Al Your name is glorified among us and it's lifted up high before us. And we know that as you step foot before us, you are our rear guard, you are our forward. You go out as a powerful breath before us, a powerful breath to push back our enemies, to, to defeat our enemies and to close down the cycle of violence before us. Father, we know that there are those around us that have made a covenant with death. 
but yet we have made a covenant with you on a covenant of life and life abundantly. And we've gathered in this covenant of life and life abundantly in the name of Yahushua HaMashiach, knowing that you two are with us and that you have joined in this prayer to lift it before the throne. We lift our prayers now as a strong incense before you, as a rising offering, an offering that will fill the temple with your glory. And we petition you, Yah, that you might hear our voices, knowing that you are one who listens, one who cares, one who holds every tear in the palm of your hand. Father, we know that as this wickedness increases throughout the earth and as their game plan moves forward to kill your children in this place with their covenant of death, that you would nonetheless rule supreme and that you have not appointed your children under wrath, but instead you promise deliverance. You promise deliverance in your name and you promise deliverance from the oppressor. We cling to that promise now, yeah. We know that you are sovereign. We know that there is nothing outside the scope of your vision of what you see and don't see and that none of these things that these people do are outside of your allowance. So, Father, we pray now that you will bring a righteous hand of judgment, particularly a righteous hand of judgment that forecloses the opportunities of the wicked to act in any respect. Father, when they want to look for us to see us, we pray that you would blind them. When they want to lend an ear to listen into our conversations, we pray that you would make them deaf. When they seek to lift up a sword to attack us, we pray that they would fall on their own sword. When they seek to engage in mass homicide, Father, we pray that you would remove every tool, every weapon, every capability, every thought, every idea, every ability to orchestrate, every organization, everything that they can put together, all their funding and everything else, that you would remove that suddenly from them. And they would be unable to do anything more than to stand up and sit down in their own chair. Father, we also pray that those who are who are contemplating, who go to bed at night contemplating wicked desires and wicked schemes that they can execute against American people, that you would render their minds blank, completely blank, that they would have no concepts whatsoever, would not be able to think, would not even know their own name, would not know where they are, nothing. She was just blank in their mind, Father, so that their evil cannot rise. And Father, we pray that you would also bestow in your children uh, a heart of praise, a garment of praise, that you would give us this joy of gladness for mourning, Father, that you would also restore sight to us that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear and an acute mind, that we might be able to proclaim your name even in the dark places, and that we might be a light even in the dark places, and that we might be your children even in the light places, and even that we might endure no matter how bad this may be. And so, Father, we pray now that for those of us in this community that are suffering, that you would hear their prayers, Father, that you would hear their prayers that, and that you would address their acute need and answer their acute need with what they need, Father. We pray for that. We pray for those people who are in homeless shelters. We pray for those people who are sleeping in their cars. We pray for those people that have no home. We pray for those people that have no food. We pray for those people who have at their wits end, Father, that you would give them hope and that you would give them a chance to survive. We pray these things, yes. We pray these things as a family. We also pray for the lonely, Father, those who have no other place to go, no people to fellowship with. We pray for that group as well, Father, that you would find people that they, in their immediate, immediate community that could come alongside them and to say, I am your friend. I am part of your family. We pray for the groups in Canada, Father, that all those who are suffering under the leadership in Canada, that uh, they might be blessed, they might be protected, they might be covered, they might be covered with your wings and that they might be made invisible 
uh, to the government that comes out of Ottawa. And that uh, we also pray, Father, that that all the wickedness in that regime would perish and that it would perish quickly, that you would look, see the wickedness and just crush it with a mighty blow, that the wickedness would no longer grow at all. You would give it that you would give them a famine, a famine of all of all things that they need to put nutrients into their wickedness, that their wickedness would disappear and it would have no life whatsoever. We pray also for the hearts of the leaders in the EU and in the UK that they would awaken to the fact that by following the crowd that they're following, by taking the money from the IMF, and by moving ahead with these plans, that they are executing a genocide against their own people, and that ultimately they're gonna cost the lives of their own grandchildren, their own children, their own friends, their own family members, their brothers, their sisters, their nephews, their nieces, their grandmothers, their grandfathers. Father, give them eyes to see what they are doing and have them repent. May they turn from their ways in Ireland, may they turn from their ways in England and the United Kingdom. May they turn from their ways in Brussels. May the EU back away from its vaccine passport. May they look to India and see the effect of the vaccine and learn, Father, and learn, and learn, and learn. And we pray for the families that are governing the leadership of the Vatican, that those families would walk away from this elevation of Lucifer, who is a false demon and who has no governorship over the world at all. Hasatan is not Lucifer. Hasatan has been set loose on this earth and he's angry because he has a short time. We pray, Father, that you would chain him to Hasatan. Do not give him the opportunity to see your children, Father, but blind him when he looks towards us. Block him and sequester his demons. Chain them down. Keep them, keep them away from your children. Those who would praise your name, those who follow as you commanded, those who are of your covenant. That you would protect, cover, guide, lead us, and prepare us for your second exodus when you were pre preparing to restore Jerusalem. We praise you in all those things, Father, knowing that you are righteous. You are righteous. You are a Yah of justice. You are a Yah of righteousness. You are a Yah of mercy. Your compassion endures forever. We praise you for that, for who you are. So we lift this to you tonight in the glorious name of Yahusha. The word made flesh. Amen. Um, hallelujah. Um, before we go, uh, which we sort of ran out of time, but before we go, I do, I have uh, audio for the um, the song and I would like to share it and then we can conclude. Um, yeah, can you just grab him? Thank you, hang on. Here we go. All right, let's just make this. Here we go, Dr. P. Thank you very much again. This was very informative, fantastic. I'm actually gonna go back and watch it this Shabbat, take lots of notes. I appreciate what you do. You have a new sense of boldness. I don't know what, what it is, but fantastic. Courage, boldness, you keep it up, Dr. P. We love you. Thank you, Jessica. All right, here we go. Tell me if you can hear it, okay? Can you hear it? Yeah. Hallelujah. Take me in. 
That's a beautiful voice right there. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All right, Dr. Pigeon, again, we just want to thank you for, uh, again, speaking boldly and speaking truth. And a matter of fact, the time is short. And uh, may we use this time wisely. May we consider and count our days. Dr. Pigeon, would you like to close us out with any words? Yeah, I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, we look at these things, you know, I'm always amazed by when we, when we, you know, do research in the scripture, what we find, you know, what we're unearthing. And um, uh, this is a great fellowship, this family here. And even though we have, uh, uh, even though, you know, the world is looking like a very difficult place right now, you know, we just walked through some pretty interesting difficulties this last week, <laughs> Jessica, both you and I did. And even though we walk through those kinds of difficulties, you know, Yah is with us. And he's here to bless us. And as the as the forces of darkness rise up against us, and, you know, and I can tell you, they have made a covenant with death. That's what this pandemic is. It's a covenant with death. But we have a covenant with life. And let us be secure in that covenant of life that Yah knows, he sees us, and he blesses us. And so I'm going to say shalom, shalom, bailatov, and borukatach, b'heshem b'yavsha, Mashiach. Bless you all in the name of Yahshua. Hallelujah. Amen. Shalom. Shalom.